Coming up, Cobra Kai, the sports reporters, million dollar picks. It's one of the goofiest podcasts of the year. It is a holiday present to you. It's all next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is stressful enough just with the airport situation. No matter where you're going, it's always packed. You're always worried the weather might be bad. Is my plane going to get delayed? You just want the actual place you're staying at to be a lights out experience. So if you've booked a vacation rental and you found yourself stuck making small talk with the host, where you've arrived to find out it doesn't look anything like the pictures, you know, that's that's the worst. You could avoid the awkwardness with Verbo. Verbo has helped travelers find great private vacation rentals for nearly 30 years. You heard me correctly. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your private vacation rental in the Verbo app. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where I put up a new rewatchables with Chris Ryan this week. We did The Born Identity an action classic. I also, on the Ringer Dish podcast, Wednesday nights, Dave Jacoby and I break down the challenge, Double Agents, the uh, iconic MTV show, the fifth American professional sport. I promise you there's no better challenge recap. I, I rarely say things like that, but it's 25 minutes. We make a ton of jokes. We break it down like it is the uh, game seven of the NBA finals. And it is just the peak, the pinnacle of challenge recaps. Nobody's doing better than us. It's just not happening. Uh, why are we doing it? I have no idea. I just missed Jacoby. That's it. Coming up, Billy Zabka. Finally. It took 13 years. We finally got him on a podcast. He's going to talk about Cobra Kai, which is premiering on Netflix. Season three. We are breaking that news. Season three. Repeat. Season three of my son's favorite show will be premiering on Netflix on January 1st. They are dropping it. It is going to be a binge watch extravaganza. We're going to talk to him about that and how the character of Johnny Lawrence evolved over the last 35 plus years. And, uh, and it's a really fun one. And then we are going to talk to Brian Curtis and Jason Gay, AKA the sports reporters breaking down the year in sports media. And at the top, we're going to do some million dollar picks. It's all next. First, Pearl Jam. All right, Billy Zapka and the Sports Reporters coming up in one second. I wanted to talk a little NBA and some million dollar picks here at the top. I watched the NBA for two straight nights. You never want to overreact to the first games, but you know, 
the basic reactions. Brooklyn's going to be awesome. We try to tell you that during the uh, the mega preview with Russell and House. John Moran is going to be awesome. We try to tell you that one too. The Wizards are going to be a playoff team. I was really impressed by their battle with the Sixers, which the Sixers ended up winning because Embiid just took over the game and Scotty Brooks wouldn't bring Robin Lopez in. But in general, the Westbrook-Beal combo was as advertised. Beal looked like he's going to be a top 10 guy this year and Westbrook did all the stuff he usually does. Philly, the encouraging thing for them is they actually had some movement and some offensive know-how at the end of the game, which was something that did not happen once during the Brett Brown era. So in general, I, I thought that was a really fun game and I love the chemistry of the Wizards. I loved how intense they were. The whole bench was into it and I like their team. I really do. I, I think that has a chance to be a top six team in the East. Bucks Celtics, the the holiday addition to the Bucks, you could see it. He was he was really good, and the Celtics had an impossible time matching up to him. Whether they should have given up forty picks for him, well, I guess we'll know in uh, in June and July whether that was a good idea. But he's a problem, and when Giannis is playing like the way he played in the fourth quarter, they feel like the most unstoppable team in the league. The Celtics held on. Some really shaky, weird lineup choices and just in general, like the, the bench is still spotty, but the Thompson addition, Tristan Thompson, who didn't have a preseason, but you could see during that game, how important he's going to be from a defense rebounding standpoint. It was even guarding Giannis a few times, but, uh, he is a crunch time guy for the Celtics. And I just think he's more valuable to what the Celtics need to be as a playoff team than Gordon Hayward was. So, and Hayward had a good game on Charlotte, you know, he had 26 and, I'm sure he's going to have a good fantasy basketball season. That team will win 25 games. But uh, for what the Celtics need, they need Kemba to come back. And they need this to be Tatum and Jalen's team. And that's what it looked like in that first game. Um, the, the only two other ones really jumped out of me. I'm not going to overreact to the, ja the Jazz killing the Trailblazers. I just think the Trailblazers are going to have games like that where they just look terrible. Um, Kings Nuggets was fun just because... Tyrese Halliburton played so many minutes and was so important on both ends. And it's not like he had an awesome box score, but if you actually watch the game, he looked like a five-year veteran. And, you know, and now Buddy Heald's getting more minutes. Fox is out there. Bagley seemed relatively healthy. And they ended up upsetting the Nuggets in overtime, a game they should have won in regulation. But the Halliburton and, and James Wiseman, those two guys, I thought they were the two best guys in the draft. I would have had Wiseman first and Halbert in second. And I think that's how it's going to play out over the course of the season. I think those two, if you saw Wiseman on that first game, you'll see him on Christmas too. He's just, he, he's just a big athletic guy that doesn't really exist that much in the NBA. And the fact that he didn't go first and that Minnesota decided to take Edwards over him. Edwards was fine in the first game. Looked pretty good. But the fact that they kind of veered away from the possibility of a Towns-Wiseman combo, the whole NBA should be sending them thank you notes. So uh, I was excited for the Kings, though, because I thought that was a fun one to watch. And then the other the other kind of takeaway was just the Suns doing what we thought on paper that they might do with Chris Paul on that team. Close game, back and forth, crunch time, and they got really good shots down the stretch. And Chris... Chris hit, hit his patented shot, set up Booker for another one. Booker made a couple clutch ones. Uh, Bridges was really good in that game too. But um, in general, Phoenix just looked like a playoff team in that game. They, down the stretch, were, were able to 
execute the stuff they wanted. So I thought that was encouraging. If I'm Dallas, you know, you got an awesome Luka game, you still lost. And it's just going to be tough for them without Porzingis because they don't really have another elite player on that roster. So my fear for them is if Porzingis is a while away, this puts a lot of pressure on Luka early. Um, Luka's going to have to put up huge stats and carry a huge workload. And if he gets hurt for even two weeks, that team could be in trouble with the playoffs because the West is is much, much better than it used to be. So anyway, um, looking at the Christmas Day games, Miami is minus four and a half at home against New Orleans. I think it's a stay away. New Orleans is one of those teams, if you catch them on the right night, they have so much offense. They look great. Uh, who knows with Miami how long it's going to take for them to kind of click back into bubble mode. I would stay away from that one. Brooklyn and Boston. Brooklyn is favored by three in Boston. And I actually think this should be a pick em. I would not bet it, but Brooklyn beat the hell out of them in the preseason. And in general, Brooklyn just looks like uh, one of the three best teams in the league. I think it's a stay away. Dallas and the Lakers. I didn't like the energy of the Lakers on the first night, but when you get the rings, that screws you up. Um, I also really didn't love what I saw from Dallas last night. The only one I would think about here is, is doing Dallas with the over. Dallas plus 205 and the over 227, but uh, stay away from that one. And then Clippers Nuggets. You know, the Clippers looked really good on that first night. They also had three months rest and the game was ultimately meaningless. Denver is a team. This seems like it would be a revenge game for the Clips, but uh, I just feel like that's a stay away too. The only one I like, the Bucks to beat the Warriors. They are minus 560 just to beat the Warriors. The Warriors without Draymond uh, and all the weird pieces they have, no chance. Plus the Bucks can put Drew Holiday on Curry and take him out. I don't see any way the Warriors win this game. So we are going to carry the Bucks over into a parlay for million dollar picks. Uh, very excited to do this. We had a tough week on million dollar picks. We lost $449,000. You know why? Because the freaking Steelers. What dickheads? They blew the, They blew my giant parlay. All they had to do was win by three and freaking Ryan Finley beats them. And Ben looks like he's 100,000 years old and is really frustrating. We're going to make our money back on them this week. But uh, from parlays, we're down 250000 for the season. We're making it all back. I'm looking at a million-dollar parlay for week 16 NFL that involves an NBA team. And here's what that looks like. I already mentioned the Bucks are minus 560 just to beat the Warriors. So we have them in place. We have the Arizona Cardinals are playing the 49ers who have just been completely ravaged. And now we're down to CJ Beathard with Josh Rosen as his backup at QB and are just trying to make it to the finish line now. They have had the all-time year from hell. Arizona, only five-point favorites. Um, I don't totally understand it, but uh, minus 230 to win the game. I kind of hate betting on Cliff Kingsbury, but... I just think Kyler can win this one by himself. Kyler's back. I think Kyler is going to be a major fantasy football wrinkle this week. So mark that one down. Arizona minus 230. Same thing for the Bears, minus 400 against the Jaguars. This is just a fade of the Jags. The Jags now have a chance to have the number one pick. All they have to do is not screw up the last two games. I'm sure they'll play the worst quarterback possible. Um, I'm sure they'll be scratching dudes with minor injuries and they just, the Jets did them such a huge favor. Plus Trubisky 
has reactivated the Trubisky truthers. Now, it would be hilarious if if Trubisky lost to the Jaguars and then on top of it gave the Jets the number one pickback. I'm noting that, but I'm not afraid of it. I, uh, I'm throwing them in. And then the last one is the Bills minus 330 on Monday night against the New England Patriots. They are seven-point favorites. The Patriots lost Stephon Gilmore. The Patriots cannot score. The Patriots have Cam Newton, who's working on five TDs and 10 picks this year and can't complete a nine-yard pass. They just defensively have looked like they've passed a point of no return with Gilmore, plus all the guys that opted out before the season. Their front seven uh, has no chance of containing Josh Rosen. And this is a little bit of a revenge game for the Bills, too, because they uh, they barely beat the Pats the last time. I think they were surprised by the Pats' completely run-heavy game plan and all that stuff. But um, I'm all in on this Bills team. We've been riding them the last couple of weeks here on Million Dollar Picks. I just feel like this is a team that knows they have a chance to win the Super Bowl. They're not fucking around anymore. They have a chance to get a two-seed. And they're going to try to lock that down. And I'm not worried at all about throwing them in. So if you put the Bucks to win, the Cardinals, Bears, and Bills to win, all four have to win, it is plus 273. So if we bet $367,000 on that, you win $1 million exactly. Mark that one down. Next one. Indy, minus one and a half over the Steelers. Normally, I would say, watch out for the Steelers here. They're home. They're home dogs. That's ridiculous. Everyone's overreacting to the last four weeks. This is a kitchen sink game for them. Get ready for some reverses, some flea flickers, some fake punts, all the stuff you do when your back's to the wall. Here's the problem. They're not very good. Even Somehow, they're eighth in weighted DVOA. But here's the thing. They played the easiest schedule in the league by DVOA. They're first in defensive DVOA, but they played the 31st ranked offenses in DVOA and they've lost two of their best defensive players um, just over the course of the season. Then on the rushing side for, for their offense, they're 30th in rush DVOA and the eye test backs it up. They just have no danger guys at all. And then on top of it, Roethlisberger's falling apart. Now, last forget the last four weeks. Last nine weeks, he's under six yards yards per attempt which basically is a cry for help because that means you're getting no big plays at all. That means it's all short stuff. And to that, that is like Cam Newton territory. Um, his last four games, he's 5.18 yards per attempt, which basically means screen passes and you hiked me the ball and I immediately threw it to somebody. We get no deep plays at all. I test backs that up as well. He can't throw the ball deep anymore. Six touchdowns, six turnovers. I don't know how they're going to move the ball against Indianapolis. Last four weeks, they beat Baltimore in 19-14. It was Robert Griffin who gave them a pick six. They scored 12 points otherwise. Next, five days later, Washington, they score 17 points. They lose to them. Next week, 15 points against Buffalo, lose to them. Next week, Cincinnati, 17 points. They lose to them. Then you go on the flip side with Indy. Indy's last six weeks, they've been really explosive. 34 points against Tennessee, they won. They beat Green Bay in OT 34-31. Scored 26 against Tennessee, but got killed. Um, Beat Houston 26-20. Beat Vegas 44-27. Beat Houston 27-20. I just don't think Pittsburgh can hang from a points standpoint with Indy. Indy's just in the mid-20s or higher every game now. 
their offense, Rivers, his last six games, 12 touchdowns, two interceptions, 108 QB rating, and almost eight yards per attempt. He's been really good because he has good tight ends. He's got Hines and Taylor, both who can catch the ball out of the backfield and are pretty good when they have the ball. And then, uh, and then his receivers, T.Y. Hilton's a little rejuvenated the last few games. It's become a fantasy wrinkle. I just think it needs better. And if you're making the case of up oh, Steelers bounce back game, nobody thinks they can win all that stuff. It's like, great. Um, they're not very good. So the other thing with this Pittsburgh game, it's not totally a must win game for them. The game next week is the must win game with the Browns. So you could talk yourself into, Hey, if we, you know, they're obviously trying to win every game, but they could talk themselves into, Hey, if we lose this one, we could still beat the Browns and win the division title next week. So. I just like the spot for Indy. I think they're better. I think the line should be three. Mark that one down. Indy by one and a half. Next one is Rams, Seattle. Rams looked horrendous last week. You're getting them on a bounce back where the worst loss of the year, if you can't get fired up after you take a giant shit like that against the Jets, uh, then you suck and you shouldn't make the playoffs. I think the Rams are a playoff team. Every once in a while, Goff's awful. Sal and I talked about it on, on uh, Sunday's pod. He's the parlay murderer for a reason. When things go bad, uh, it's usually because he's playing awful and then they fall apart. So I don't think that happens two weeks in a row. I don't think Seattle's defense is good enough to eke that kind of performance out of him. Then you look at Seattle. The Rams are sixth in DVOA. Seattle's ninth. Seattle's a much, much worse defense than the Rams. Seattle has a tendency to just let these teams hang around. It even happened last week with Washington with Dwayne Haskins, who ends up in a strip joint that night with no mask, somehow almost leads Seattle uh, to a loss because he has this big comeback thing happening. And it's Dwayne Haskins. What are you doing? So, you know, Seattle scheduled this year 25th against DVOA. I, I don't think they've looked that good for really two months. And uh, I think the Rams are better. The Rams already beat them. You're getting... The Rams plus one and a half in Seattle and the line really should be a pick them because I think the Rams have more talent. I am ready for like a ferocious defensive effort from them and then a comeback game for Goff. But the thing with the Rams, they can run the ball. Akers is good. They just need to go back to run the ball, run the ball, play action, run the ball, play action, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, play action. Just go back to who you are. I don't know what happened to them in that Jets game. I think it's hard to get fired up against a, a winless team in December. So uh, I don't think it happens again. Then the next one is Philly. Minus two and a half in Dallas. Dallas is catching this tailwind where they actually looked okay last week. So like, oh, maybe Dallas, who knows? Their defense is awful. I think Hertz is legit. I watched that whole Cardinals-Eagles game. I'm in on Hertz. I think he's a legit um, game-breaker quarterback. Really like him. And I thought he energized the Eagles in a pretty unique way. You could see on the sidelines, and even their defense looked livelier. I just think they like playing with him and for him. So um also think the NFC East, I think it would be hilarious if this came out where uh, week 17, you could have a situation where this is a loser leaves town match, by the way, whoever loses this game is out. But in week 17, you could have a situation where the Eagles, who we all gave up on, who we all thought were dead. That was it. We wrote them off. Now all of a sudden they could be alive. Right now they're four, nine and one. Washington's six and eight. 
And if Washington loses today, Washington would be six and nine and the Eagles would be five, nine and one. And then you look at week 17, guess who plays each other? The Eagles and Washington. So, uh, you know, a loser leaves town match, but they just have more talent than Dallas. And uh, I like, I like the spot for them. The only question for me is whether you mess with the Eagles minus two and a half and open the door open for Doug Peterson doing all his dumb two-point conversion shit and missed extra points and all the things that always happen to them. Or you just grab the minus 142 with them. So if you potentially you can do the Eagles minus 142 and then you could bring the Bucks back into it. Bucks minus 560. And that's plus 101. I think I like that one. Eagles Bucks putting the Bucks in two parlays. All right. So mark that one down. Last one, long shot parlay of the week. We have the Falcons plus 440 against the Chiefs. And we had the Vikings plus 260 on Christmas Day against New Orleans. And Drew Brees, who looks like he's going to uh, keel over at any time. I am going to uh, recommend this as a minor spreading because it's plus 1844. So you can put $100 on this and win 1844 So mark down some scenario with that Falcons-Vikings. All right, it's time. The million-dollar picks for week 16, including NBA. First one, Indianapolis minus one and a half over the falling apart Steelers. We are putting $300,000 on that one. We are also putting $200,000 on the Rams plus one and a half over Seattle. And we are putting $200,000 on Philly just to win parlayed with the Milwaukee Bucks to beat Golden State Warriors, putting $200,000 on that to win $201,000. We are doing a long shot parlay of just a, a sprinkling $10,000, Falcons plus 440, Vikings plus 260 to win, uh, to win $184,000. And then the big one, the big million dollar parlay, your big million dollar holiday parlay. We're putting $367,000 at plus 273 odds on the Bucks, Cardinals, Bears, and Bills. All four have to win a million dollar parlay. Bucks, Cardinals, Bears, Bills. So we're down $250,000 for the season. We're winning it all back this week. Happy holidays. I hope you enjoyed my million dollar parlay. All right, we're going to take a break and get to Billy Zabka. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside LDA 21 and up. 
All right. I am joined by the ageless Billy Zabka. I don't know what your exact age is at this point. You look almost exactly the same. I don't know how you pulled it off. Um, you are one of the stars of a show that has become my son's favorite show of all time. I was really nervous when it came out um, that they were rebooting it, that they would screw it up, that this would be bad because I love the Karate Kid. I love the franchise. And yet this show is a phenomenon. When it went to Netflix, this show went to another level. I felt like it was beloved, but but just explain what it was like, the shift being on the Netflix page and all the people that streamed into it. Yeah, it was, uh, it's still happening. It was like, you know, surfing a wave and uh, all of a sudden behind it came this, you know, monster tsunami rave. And all of a sudden it's just been, uh, you, you really couldn't see it happening. It was kind of almost like a tsunami in a way, it kind of sucked out. There was this kind of, funny analogy, but it was like, you know, after, after we had a break from YouTube and we were shopping it around to find a new home, there was this kind of downtime when it felt like maybe it's, you know, is this going to land somewhere else? And then Netflix grabbed it, which is where we always wanted it to be from the beginning. Yeah. Um, we were so thrilled just like that. I was happy to see, you know, if it would show up in like the family category or the comedy category or the action category, like I was just excited to scroll through Netflix and find it somewhere. Right. And, uh, it came out in, it was, you know, and there was season one and two, which had already been yeah. out for a while. So, you know, but they knew what they were doing on that and they grabbed the world, man. And all of a sudden it was, it was, it's overwhelming. It still is. I mean, I'm still seeing how the echoes of this show are reaching all corners of the earth. And um, it's, it's a new stage for sure. Yeah. And you had right after it got, or maybe right before it got released or somewhere around the same time, they had changed the main page to have the trending thing. Yeah. And Cobra Kai was trending for just weeks on end. And <laughs> and uh I think my son's watched it five times from start to finish. She just loves it. And it's and it's a super bingy show. But I think the the part that amazed me, and and I really feel like there's a blueprint for how to reboot franchises now. Where normally, like, you know, like a good example is the Bad News Bears movie. And they just make it again 30 years later with Billy Bob Thornton. It's basically the same movie. And it's like, well, yeah. why'd they do that? Bad News Bears is still a good movie. So right. in the reboot in Karate Kid, which they did with Will Smith's son, you know, they change it. They put it in a foreign country, but it's basically the same premise. Rebooting it this way, but I'm catching up with these characters that I like 35 years ago was kind of genius. Yeah. Did you, when yeah. they pitched this to you, what was your reaction? I was... They hit me like like a three-headed dragon, man. They took me to a Mexican restaurant, told me they had a, a pitch for a new show they wanted to meet me with, meet me on. Uh, Josh Heald, I worked with on Hot Tub Time Machine. I knew John Horowitz and Hayden Schlossberg from Hilden Kumars. So I knew they were comedy writers. I knew their style. So when they pitched me an idea like we want to talk about a show, I was ready for Harold and Kumar 6 or something like that. And then yeah. we sat down and they just spit-fired Cobra Kai and uh, I, my jaw was on the table. I said, this is fantastic, just the idea of this. I said, but, you know, for this to happen, you have to get a lot of people to sign off. You just can't imagine, you know, booting, rebooting a franchise like this. And then they said, we have everybody, Sony's on board, Overbrook's on board, everybody's signed off. And then it became, started to dawn on me that, wow, this could be real. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I, then I wanted to know, like, wait, then I, the pitch was exactly season one. Imagine season one in five minutes. Okay. And you haven't heard anything about Johnny Lawrence or Daniel for all this time. So I was grabbing on to everything I could with what was familiar to me, which was Johnny and Daniel and that story. But then these guys had Miguel and Robbie and Sam and this whole other world 
that was completely foreign to me. And I couldn't grasp all that. My main thing was what's, wait, what's the tone? You know, Karate Kid's a family movie. It's a beloved family movie. You know, how far does this go off? You know, and um, so, but by the end of it, I said, you know, as long as you don't, what I don't want to do is I don't want to double down on my dickness. Like I don't want to end up being the worst bad guy of all time and take a proverbial crane kick to the face at the end of this thing. Yeah. You know? So everybody hates me for all time. No, you're going to be more of an anti-hero. And then what they said, which really helped me understand the tone, they said, if there was no karate kid, we could call this bad sensei in the same way that bad Santa. And then it clicked in and I kind of got it. So I walked away feeling stirred and hopeful and reluctant a little bit. I think like, you know, all the fans, when they first saw this, it was a little bit like, don't mess with that. And yeah. I had that check in my spirit. I know Ralph did as well. Um, but there was, it was the guys. I love the guys. Their pitch was so solid. They really were so passionate about Karate Kid, so passionate about these characters, passionate about me as a bad guy. They follow me, you know, the just one of the guys in the back to school. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that they wanted to give me a chance to have a little redemption and all that was super exciting, whether it was, you know, Karate Kid related or not. And so I said, so they said before the half hour was up, they're like, are you in or out? And I said, well, I'm in. What's next? And they said, we got to get Ralph Macchio. And I said, good right. luck. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's it. Well, they did a nice job sketching out the kids because obviously my son's 13. So he's going to gravitate to the kids characters. They're near his age. And all of those are really well drawn. But I don't know if you remember this, but I was on Corolla's show. I remember. I know, it must we have did been it mid two thousands, yeah. And you yeah. came on, yep. and we did a whole thing about Karate Kid, and you know, it was one of my favorite movies when when uh, when I was certainly in high school, and I just feel like it's exceptionally rewatchable. So we had a lot of questions. I think one of the things we talked about was did Johnny Lawrence get a bad rap in that movie? Like yeah. Daniel San was kind of an <laughs> yeah. asshole. Like like yeah. why yeah. haven't we shifted it? And right. that kind of became a thing on the internet, I think, over the last 15 years. And the show really yeah. tapped into that, where it's like, yeah. eh, are we sure Johnny Lawrence was that much of a villain? Uh, you must have loved that part, though. I did, man. And listen, I, I've been a fan of yours for years. And you kept this, like, when you came out, I don't know what year, was it 2005 with the best sports movies or something? Yeah. Like, you know, you had this platform, and, and um, you know, it was in my it was in my peripheral Karate Kid and all this stuff. But that guys like you and Corolla and all these, Patton Oswald, you know, who just kept Johnny Lawrence and the Karate Kid, like, just kept kind of, like, tipping the rock up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Like, man, it means so much. Like, when they said you wanted, you know, would you want to do Bill? I said, 100%. Because Oh, that's good. Like I, 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 yeah, because, you know, guys like you are the guys that started some of this conversation and, and all that. But yeah, we did. We talked about that on Corolla. And uh, I always felt that way because I always felt that Johnny was, I, you know, listen, to play a character like that, you, you can't go in and think of him as evil. It just doesn't fit with your body, right? So yeah. I went in and I saw the goodness in him. I tried to find his vulnerabilities. I tried to find, okay, at the end of the movie, he hands a trophy. And, and so he's not all bad. He's a little redeemed, creased cheeks, chokes him out. So I, I always felt like, you know, he had a little bit of a redemption at the end. And at, at the beginning of Karate Kid 2, he's choked out of the franchise. Right. And I was at peace with it. So I always felt like, yeah, he was... He was tough. Daniel, you know, instigated it. Maybe Johnny overreacted a little. Maybe his training kicked in and he took things too far. But overall, yeah, he wasn't a bad guy. So, you know, for the years that he was, you know, labeled the, the biggest asshole and the worst villain and all those things, I'm like, sure, I was the antagonist, but I never saw him as a pure villain. I saw Crease more as a pure villain. Yeah. So, so that conversation definitely happened. Like, 
people start, I don't know, in the replays over and over again, you know, you start going, wait a second, you know, the magic's wearing off. You know, Bill Conti's music is the crescendo of the crane kick and the motion of Daniel and Miyagi and all that. But when you scrape it all away and you see this is a human story, maybe Johnny got a little bit of a bad rap as far as how, you know, how he's been characterized for these three decades, you know? Yeah, there, there's definitely, I, I don't know when it shifted, but I think the the next two Karate Kid movies didn't help the Daniel-san case where it's like, this guy's a hero. And then by the time you get to Karate Kid 3, you're kind of hoping he gets his ass kicked. <laughs> so it makes you reconsider the Johnny Lawrence piece of it. But sure. I also think it's a credit to, you know, Rosella and I did a rewatchables about Karate Kid on the rewatchables pod, I don't know, six months ago. And we were saying like, the Johnny Lawrence character is just a really good character. You know, you're talking where the 80s where you had these villains and they're always like super cartoonish and completely over the top. And it's like the Ivan Drago era of just right. sneering Russian who has three lines and is taking yeah. steroids and it's totally doesn't care if Apollo Creed dies. It's just completely over the top. And yeah. Johnny was a little more nuanced, especially as an 80s character where you have so many different high school movies and the yeah. villain in the high school movie is always just the worst, most unredeeming asshole. Right. They're just always set up to take that to take the punch. They were there, you know, to for the hero to conquer. It was yeah. written that way too. I think, you know, Robert Kamen, who wrote Karate Kid, I don't know how much he thought about, you know, Johnny handing him the trophy and having good sportsmanship at the end. It reminds me a little bit of Bad Boys with Sean Penn and um, Oh, that's a classic. And, and, yeah. and Isai Morales. Remember, like I think they kind of became friends at the end, or there was a redemptive moment of Isai and he as doesn't much kill as they him. were. Yeah. He doesn't kill him, you know. It's yeah. like there was a little bit of that somewhere in the script. Um, and uh, so, I i mean, I had to build the whole character on that moment. For me as an actor, as a person, as an 18-year-old kid, you know, reading the script, it was like, you know, he's a badass. He's kicking everybody's butt. He's got karate black belt. But nothing I connected to until the end. And I'm like, oh, okay. So at his core, he's maybe not all bad. So, right. so I played that, you know. And uh, yeah, I think there was a little more two-dimensional villains that you know you just hate to hate and um i was just trying to make him human you know i just did my thing and and then of course credit all goes to the cutting and john avelson and the storytelling and you know miyagi saves johnny in a way at the end and all the cobra kais and there's that moment at the end of karate kid where you know we see crease directing bobby to go sweep his leg and all right. of a sudden we're having second thoughts and there was all this kind of angst and stuff and that kind of happened on the day i remember like when we were filming that stuff we didn't rehearse all that inner turmoil we it sort of happened live we rehearsed those scenes but we didn't it, it was happening for us i remember rob garrison who played tommy came on the set one day and we were both really in the dumps and he's like we couldn't figure out why we were so down we're like are we down because the show's coming to an end and we're going to christmas and we're finishing the movie and he said he called his acting coach and said we're all going through some you know some kind of sadness right now you know is there any what do you think he said um what are your characters going through right now and he said well you know, we're realizing our, our teacher is teaching wrong kind of thing. And he said, well, yeah. you're living it. You're living it. So all that stuff that happened at the end, and John Avildsen had cameras pointed from every direction. And it wasn't like they set those shots up to do. It was just, he was videotaping like live theater of what was happening and then put all that together. So you, I remember when I did the research for the rewatchables pod, I learned a lot of stuff about the movie. You know, there, it's amazing how much stuff's out there. There's been oral histories, magazine features, all this stuff. And you threw yourself into learning karate for like three months and you, and you became really good at it. Then this movie hits 
But, and this happens sometimes in the eighties and I can even sense when we talked about it 15 years ago, the character becomes so distinct that as an actor, you're almost like trapped by the character, right? So you go and you do just one of the guys and you do, um, can't buy me love. Uh, no, um, back to school. Oh, no, back, back to, to school. school. Back to yeah. school. Um, so you do those two. I can't believe I screwed that up. I knew it was back to school. Uh, back to school, I felt like was him in college, basically. Um, right. But yeah. you do those two, and now you're like typecast as the uh, as the '80s villain. And yeah, but yeah, right. But it was still the '80s, so you don't think that's happening. You know what I mean? Like ten years then, on the '90s, I'm like, wait, I'm the '80s villain. You know, in the 2000s, you're really starting to see that. Um, for me, I was just man, I just loved acting. I love being on set. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, back to school, I almost didn't do. And and funny enough, just one of the guys, I signed on to do just one of the guys. And then day after I signed that, they offered me the bad guy in Better Off Dead. And I was already committed to just one of the guys. And I'm like, man, I want to go skiing with Cusack. That sounds fun. Yeah. But in, instead, I'm in the baking hot Arizona desert playing uh, Greg Tolan, who really wasn't redeemable. I mean, there was nothing I could do for that guy. I just had I to make I always felt like that was, a, yeah, that was like a parody of a Johnny Lawrence character. Yeah. You know, and I, there was a lot of like karate kid references within the movie. And I complained about that. And I love it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an 80s, you know, kind of timeless film now to find to look back on and stuff. Wait, hold on. Up. I'm going to, I have to interrupt. I think that yeah. worked out better for you just for the IMDb because I think that's a better movie than Better Off Dead from a, as 35 years later, I think yeah, it has better sure. legs. That movie's I, definitely really does. good. It's And it's actually yeah. like kind of shocking that the whole theme of the movie is the the journalism teacher basically doesn't think she could, has what it takes to be a reporter because she's a female. So she has right. to go to another high school as a guy to prove she has the chops. It was like, it's never come out now in 2020. Right, right. Yeah, no, it was, it's a, it, yeah, it was definitely a piece of time there. That was a great, that was fun. I enjoyed doing the movie and it definitely has better legs. Back to school, I was doing the Equalizer in New York and I was working with Edward Woodward and doing some mm. like real kind of drama, you know, Robert Mitchum and all these great classic older thespians that I was, you know, just professionals, you know, older seasoned actors. And I was just learning so much from them and felt like I was kind of getting away from the teen movie thing. Yeah. And while I'm on set, I get an uh, offer for back to school and it's to play the bad guy diver. And I loved everybody that was involved, but I was like, man, this is like the third one. And so I asked Edward Woodward on the set, I said, you know, I just got an offer to do a movie. I played two bad guys and he gave me great advice. He said, you know, there's three reasons you take a movie. He said, either the part's so good, you do it for free. Number two, the people are involved are so great. You want to work with them or three, it's the money. He said, if not one of those, don't do it. And it was yeah. more than one of those. So I said, okay, I'm going to go do it. But with, uh, with back to school, I'm like, okay, I just play two tough guys. So what I, for me as an actor, what I have to do is I have to turn this guy and make him, uh, I made him the cowardly lion. I just found he's just gotten, at the end he gets a cramp, you know, I grew my hair yeah. out and had this kind of walk, you know, and, um, and made him, tried to make him a little funnier and a little more, you know, but they pulled me aside halfway through shooting and said, you know, you're coming off too quirky and funny. Can you be more the the tough guy from Karate Kid? I said, I already did that. So, right. um, you know, but I loved it. I mean, honestly, back to school, if I had to film a movie right now, of anything I've ever done, if I had to be on another set for a day, it would be that. It was such a party. It was exactly the movie in real life, you know. And that was a major, major, major movie. Dangerfield, yeah, really you know, because he had had the Caddyshack pedigree and that movie was so beloved in the 80s. And then yeah, I yeah. felt like back to school was 
just as successful and in the yeah. time. It was a moment yeah. it had. Yeah, I think so. I think it showed uh, Rodney's best work. I mean, he was great in that. He really carried that whole thing. Did film. he ever roast you during that on the set? No, but here's my first meeting with Rodney in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I get to the air, I get to the hotel with my suitcases. I roll into an elevator, goes up a floor, a door opens up. Rodney steps on the elevator, hair sticking up in a robe, crusty eyes, you know. And I said, "Hey, Rodney, I'm Billy Zapka. I'm playing Chaz." He goes, "Yeah, yeah, I know who you are. How you doing?" I said, "Good." I said, and I said, "What are you doing in your robe?" He goes, "Oh, I got to get to the sauna. I got to get the pot out of my lungs." <laughs> he goes, "You, you're young. You can handle it." That's how I met Rodney. And then uh, we became friends really on that. We talked a lot in the trailer. I gave him a Christmas card, which I think he thought was charming. You know, I went to his trailer, put a Christmas card in there. And he told me a lot about his life and his family. And uh, the rap party, I'll never forget. You know, he was at the the head table and I was over with a bunch of the other cast. And he came all the way across the room and tapped my shoulder and said, I just want you to know how much it meant to me that you gave me that Christmas card. Right. And it was really cool. That's so, cool. Yeah, it was um, cool. When did you feel like uh, as you head into the 90s, that the hangover of, of those three characters are just how like casting directors are looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't expect that you expect as an actor, you're like, well, they know you're an actor. You can play different things, but you know, listen, it's a business. So they're, they're finding, you know, which actor are people going to have an emotional reaction to? And there's a pre-existing one with this guy. So I got a lot of, a lot of different roles. I said no more than I said yes. And I took things that were more creative for me than they were going to be great films, you know? Yeah. They were just things that were fulfilling to me as an artist. Um, but I didn't really realize. I just kind of changed. Listen, the Karate Kid at the same time was gaining more and more steam. It's not like it happened and it lived there. It's like, you know, HBO comes out, cable TV, the internet. And this thing is playing constantly, yeah. gaining new and new fans. And so this kind of shadow of Johnny Lawrence is like growing on my side. and casting directors had a hard time getting around that. You know, they would say it flat out, you know, like, you're too identifiable as this character. And, and, you know, and I always thought this, and I did this music video. I don't know if you ever saw Sweep the Leg. So, oh, yeah. Um, okay, so. Oh, that was I, a, I remember putting stuff in my column about it. I was excited oh, to you? do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was my first time kind of like meeting this whole thing head on. This band wrote this song, Sweep the Leg and the great guys, the head of the label, great guy, took me out on a boat, played me this song, wanted me to be in the video. I wanted to jump off of the boat into the sharks. I said, no, I'm not jumping around with a headband. But, <laughs> you know, if you give me, if you let me write it, direct it, you know, and have creative control of it, I'll try to get all the guys back and I'll try to do something really special. And they said, go for it. And that's what Sweep the Leg came together. I wrote it. We shot it. The Cobra guys came, Ralph came in. And then, then hitting the button to upload on YouTube, I think I was like 2007 or something. Um, it just took off. People loved it. It was picked up by news channels talking about this thing. And, and that was the first time that I realized what a fan base there was out there for, mm. there was Cobra Kai knitting cl clubs and volleyball teams and Cobra Kai everywhere. And it was nice, you know, I got to kind of look and so that, but I also kind of felt like, man, the way I'm going to get out of, get to the other side is go through the eye of the needle. Like I got to, you know, hit this on the head. And so when Cobra Kai came along, it was like the perfect storm of all that was happening over there and all was happening in my career. And now I get to dive in right to where I started and like turn them inside out. They're writing me incredible stuff to show many colors, layers. And in many ways, he's a completely brand new character because he has 35 years of right. life that's been written for him. He just has the, the history that everybody's familiar with. So it's it's an exciting time with that, you know? Yeah, it's, it's like, it's nice. I, I feel like it all happened this century because I remember, 
I got to page two in 2001 on ESPN.com. And maybe within like the first nine months, I wrote about the Karate Kid trilogy. And it was just the entire column. It was like 4,000 words breaking it down. And I got so many emails about it. And people were just like, holy shit, somebody wrote it. Somebody did it. And uh, and it just... It just kind of kept going. I remember two years later, the OC launched or one year later, whatever it was. And they had the obvious Johnny Lawrence ripoff character who's like right. starting shit with the new guy. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, this that's is like right. so, so blatantly the Johnny Lawrence thing. It just kind of kept going, kept going. I think the, the, the thing that I got to say surprised me about Cobra Kai as a show was how good you were in it. And it made me kind of be like, Jesus Christ, like, what other stuff could this guy have been in? It actually kind of made me mad because I don't think A, it's not an easy character. B, you've got to, you've got to basically shift somebody's perception of what the Johnny Lawrence character was from 1984 and buy you as kind of this anti-hero, but also somebody that you don't get to see in a TV show a lot. Like his life's not great. He doesn't have a great apartment. Right. Um <laughs> yeah. hasn't really worked out. He's he's not a great dad. Um he's what is he pushing 50 at this point or maybe even a little past yeah, that and yeah he just doesn't have his shit together these are people that aren't normally on a, you know as the lead of a tv show and it right. got pulled off and then at the same time they're flipping machio where i'm kind of like i don't really like machio i feel like i'm gravitated to to johnny it was like a mind trick um yeah. i don't yeah. know how they did that as as you're reading like the scripts for the first season are you like holy shit they, this is actually like they pulled this off. Yeah, it was. Wow, man. It, on paper is one thing. I think, you know, they, they definitely wrote it that way. Um, but it's the way into the universe. Because now here we are in season three going into season four. And like, so that's that was the smart way to, to grab everybody and to yeah. grab, you know, and let everybody sync up, you know, and realize, okay, let's take Daniel down a few pegs. He's a little human, maybe a little fallible. He's not the superhero, um, which is fun. And then let's beat the hell out of Johnny and give him a Coors banquet, throw him on the floor, you know, don't even give him a friend. He doesn't even have a fish or a dog, you know, he's, he's trying to make things work. Um, is a great, is a great way to come in, you know, cause you would think it might even be the other way. Johnny owns a nice car dealership. He's a successful guy. You could have gone that way. And Daniel's still toughing it out in the Valley with his mom. And, you know, so it was really the storytelling, the writing on that. I love that. Um, some of the, the lines and some of the things I'm like, wow, he's really kind of, kind of still tough and a jerk. And I, but you know, it was about diving into the soul of, of Johnny and the heart of him. And then, putting the heart into the words coming out of his mouth and the actions coming out of his body and then realizing this is stuff that was programmed from crease way back. And so it was, right. like, it was a great, it was a great acting experiment. Listen, as an actor, you want to build up your back path. You want to build your backstory. So much of that was filled in already. And then to just fill on top of that, but how people are responding to it. And, you know, it was a thrill for me to have fans go, wow, we like the character to have people rooting for Johnny Lawrence right now is it's a thrill because for 30 years he, they weren't, you know, but well, the best this, episode yeah. is when I, it's near the end of season one. I thought the, the key episode, which made me think the show was going to have real legs was when him and Daniel actually like hang out and they yeah. go get drunk at the bar and just right. that episode yeah. is just really fun. And it's like, Holy shit, this is kind of like mind blowing. Yeah. I don't know where <laughs> this is going. And right. I, it was weird because watching on YouTube, you know, which is where the show premiered, as we discussed before. Like, I, I just wasn't used to watching things on YouTube. And yeah. 
having like it finished and the next one come up and, but you're, it was kind of hard to stream on your TV to get the app. And I don't, I don't feel like they did a great job in general, just with the app. It was sometimes it would restart stuff like that. And then when it got on Netflix, especially when it had the two seasons together, it was mm -hmm. just so easy and so bingeable. Yeah. And you just, they yeah. always had like a little tiny cliffhanger at the end of each one. So they only did what? 16? 20. 20? Yeah. 10, um, 10 and 10 and 10. Yeah. And it just, they fly by. So like, I look at somebody like my son, who's just like, I have nothing to watch. I'll just watch Cobra Kai again. <laughs> and yeah. you're banging yeah. it out in like, I don't know how many hours, but. Um, yeah. Well, it's written like a five hour movie carved up into turning points. Yes. You know, and it's so it's really that it's just, you know, it's a page turner and reading the scripts is the same way. You just keep going to the end. It just never ends, you know. Well, but with a couple, couple big ones, like Crease well, coming yeah, back. Crease season... coming back was like, whoa, what? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All and that, then the man, end of it... season two where, you know, and now I know I, know I don't want to step on season three because I haven't seen it yet. But everybody mm -hmm. listening to this will know it's out and probably at least knows what happens in the yeah. uh, in the first one. But that was it's pretty aggressive. Yeah, it's a pretty aggressive, aggressive ending to uh, totally. season two. Season two, we all got that script because we, you know, we didn't know really what was coming. We knew something was going to happen, but when we got that script, the entire cast and even the makeup trailer, the stunt department, it was like someone died in there. It was like, can you believe what's about to happen? Yeah, and you know, and I was like, like you know, I'm emotionally invested in Johnny, so like I felt very proud of the new Cobra Kai Johnny built, and here comes Crease, and you know, they have a fight, but I don't really know where that's going. I know, you know, and then he starts to betray me and the end of season two you know everything that the show was built on is just sucked it pulled away you know johnny doesn't have cobra kai creases in there his kids in the hospital it was a punch in the gut and if it didn't have a season three i'm like if it ends here this is the worst ending of all time for johnny yeah. so you had no idea if season three was happening no we, we didn't know we because youtube season... basically got out of the content business and then you're kind of keeping your fingers crossed at that point. Well, yeah, they, they but they were they they produced season three, so season three was produced by YouTube. But they waited for their analytics and all the whatever they do to figure out if they want to do another one. So we got, I think, a green light on a shooting of season three pretty soon after it aired, and then we went and shot season three, and then Netflix acquired one gotcha. and two and exclusively three. So um, and nobody's Netflix. seen three yet. This is why yeah. Netflix's stock is like five hundred plus dollars, whatever it is, because they're yeah. smart. They're really? like, hey, yeah, this is Cobra Kai. Do we put this in two hundred countries? Um, yeah. Were you worried? Could you? Did you film this during COVID or before COVID? What was the no, what was the way, schedule? way before uh, season three was completed last November, almost a year ago, over oh. a year ago. So yeah. So we, we, we were done November, December, and then went into post-production like throughout the year. Um, yeah. So no, we, we, we were, we weren't there for that. Is, uh, is Allie in season three or no? Who? Allie? Allie with an eye. I don't know, man. I haven't seen the season. I hope so, but I can't, you know, we'll have to You don't to want to spoil it for me. All right. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Well, you know, listen, he, there's a phone on the beach and it was, it mm. appears to okay. be from Allie, but who else mm. has access to her Facebook account? Good cliffhanger. Um, just promise me there's not going to be like a season nine where there's a financial role reversal and then Johnny is super rich. And Daniel's, <laughs> Daniel's in the apartment and they do that. To keep by that going. time you'll want it, Bill, by that time you'll want it, man. You'll be like, yeah, turn this thing again. Let's flip it upside down again. <laughs> Johnny's adopting children all over the place. He's got this whole family. Um, yeah. How much has your life changed since, since this one on Netflix? 
Um, yeah, a little bit. It's been a little bit of, you know, I've got kids and the family. The privacy is a little different right now. You know, I'm a little more, you know, people coming up, you know, to me, this and that. Um, but, um, you know, my, my, my life is my family and my friends. So, you know, that's what I focus on. It's great that I'm doing this work and people are responding to it. You can't, can't look at it too much, you know, otherwise it'll take you out of it. It's like the natural baseball, you know, like you got to block out the whole stadium. Right, right, right. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it's thrilling, but it, you know, uh, I, I keep my, uh, you know, my kids still haven't seen Karate Kid. That's on the list. I know that sounds crazy. How old are my your kids? kids? Ele- 11 and seven. And um, that's on the, I think that's on the list this week. Like they really want to see Karate Kid. They've been on set of Cobra Kai. They know Ralph and Marty and everything. But, uh, you know, I never, I didn't raise them to to see daddy as a, you know, anything other than, you know, ride your bike and throw him a baseball and things like that. So, um, that's so funny. I I showed my kid when he was like five. Well, if I was Daniel LaRusso in the movie, I would have showed it to him on, when they were born. <laughs> yeah, <fair. laughs> this is your father. Right. You know? He's a hero. So, <laughs> he's kid. a hero. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when Micah, my son, was, I think, about five or six. And he 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 asked me, uh, we were always playing bad guy and good guy with Legos. And, and the bad guy always went down hard. And he found a picture of me and Ralph in the crane kick stance in my office. And he goes, Dad, what's this? And I'm like, oh, that's from a, a, a movie I did a long time ago. And he goes, oh, are you fighting that boy? I said, yeah, I was, I was fighting that boy. And he goes, well, did you win? And I'm like, well, you know, not right. this fight. I go many other ones. But then he Googled uh, the trailer and saw me in a skeleton outfit beating the crap out of some guy in a fence. And that didn't go too well. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to wait till you're a little older for this guy. Right. So, anyway. Yeah, you sh- I'm sure once he dives into the whole franchise, he'll be upset about the scoring in the movie. I, I still don't know how Johnny didn't win. It was like punch to the face was legal. Then it wasn't. Yeah. Then yeah. the crane kick is a kick to the face. That's somehow legal. I, I've still never figured it out. That's a long, that's an ongoing debate. The review, the preview, the, uh, yeah, the replay show that was complete. I mean, it could have killed him really, you know, it was a, totally. took his neck back. You know, I love that. It, I mean, it just th- thrusts his neck back and then everybody rushes out and they give him a trophy. I Unbelievable. mean, it's an under 18 karate tournament. That couldn't have been, but hey, it worked with the movie. By the way, when, when I did the research on that, they filmed an actual karate tournament as you guys were filming the uh, the fights for the movie, which I never realized. They tried to yeah. make it as realistic as possible, so there's like real shit going on, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There are real karate schools all around. All around. All those kids sparring when Daniel walks in with Miyagi and checking it out, and all the kids fighting. All that was real stuff. Yeah. And then you fought like a couple dudes that were actually like real dudes. Yeah. In, the, fought, in like all the, the prelims. All the guys I fought. Yeah, they were all real dudes. And the best of them all was Daryl Vidal, who plays Daryl Vidal. Yeah. The butterfly kicks, you know. That dude, I mean, and he also invented the crane kick, if you don't know who he is. Yeah. You know, he did it in the prosthetics. But, I mean, that guy, I mean, he made me look great. These big butterfly kicks. And I just stood there and threw a round kick. And he he flew midair on his back. Yeah. So, so for the people listening, the- that's the guy Johnny fights in the semis. Yeah. And it is a destruction. It's it's a three zero yeah. massacre, but the guy you're massacring was the technical advisor Lee. for the whole movie. He yeah, was a, yeah a, <laughs> he was awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, listen. Congratulations on all this. It's a great show. Thanks. It really is. I really like it, and I, I think it's so cool that it's a show like for people my generation, your generation, that yeah. we can watch with our kids. You know, yeah. I think that's a really hard needle to thread, and somehow Definitely. they did. I think it's gonna be a monster show during the holidays. I, I'm sure yeah. it'll be front and center on Netflix for a couple of weeks there, but congrats yeah. on everything. I'm really Thank happy you. for Thanks, you. Thanks, buddy. Thank All you, right. Bill, man. I appreciate it. All right. Good to see you. You too, pal. Next time. 
This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. This episode is brought to you by Nissan SUV. It's good to stay up to date I mean, we've seen this in basketball, we've seen it in football, we've seen it in baseball. Once the stats started taking off in the 2000s, everybody had to figure that out. Then I remember in basketball, first it was three-pointers, then it was defensive stats. You just gotta keep moving, you gotta keep evolving, you gotta keep going. Now it's pace and threes. What's it gonna be next, big guys? That's why the 2024 Nissan Rogue has Google built right into its 12.3-inch touchscreen infotainment system. With Google Maps, Assistant, and more, you can stay up to date on everything that's ahead without even needing to connect your phone. Find your next adventure with the Nissan SUV. Learn more about the Rogue, Pathfinder, and Armada SUVs at NissanUSA.com. All right, it's a special year-end edition of the Sports Reporters. Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal is here and Brian Curtis from The Ringer. We've done this many times over the last few years. Have not done it for a while. Have not done it since the pandemic started. And uh, might as well start there. Sports media in 2020. We usually talk about sports media trends, things we saw, um, impact of certain things. This had to have been the most tumultuous year in sports media history because we had to completely change how we covered sports. Brian, what was your biggest takeaway? Well, I, number one, is there sports media left? <laughs> Barely. After 2020? After layoffs at everywhere from ESPN to every local paper in the world. I mean, it was a horrible, and you could see that coming from March, April. Like, yeah. oh, wait, if sports completely shut down and a lot of these media organizations weren't doing great to begin with, this is going to be really bad for people. And I think now we're sort of in the stage of a lot of the terrible things have happened. Probably more will happen. We've seen it at ESPN as recently as a couple of weeks ago. And now it's like, what, what do we bounce back as, as a sports media? Do the jobs come back? And if they do come back, do they come back in the same way? Or have we sort of reimagined things over these last couple of months and they come back in a totally, totally different form? What do you think, Jason? I will take a slightly more optimistic tack than Brian there. I agree that, you know, this forced the issue as it did in many, many businesses. Things that were struggling before the pandemic certainly weren't helped by this. And, you know, we saw a lot of carnage with job losses in journalism broadly. But if I can, like, you know, defend my brethren for a second, I would just say that, like, I was just staggered by the way that journalists uh, in sports media adapted to this situation. Many instances, you know, crossing over in the newsroom, you saw people who are used to covering like, you know, uh, springtime sports moving over and covering healthcare and going into hospitals and applying some of the same things that they learned covering sports to this pandemic. And I thought that was incredible. You know, I have a very high opinion with the rigor that a lot of sports journalists bring to this profession. And 
we saw that borne out throughout the year. I do remember vividly, um, you know, as those first games started to get canceled when you had the Go Bear game, uh, pull the plug on the NBA. Uh, and isn't that weird that we'll just remember it as the Rudy Gobert game? I mean, that just will just, <laughs> I don't know if it's its own Wikipedia entry at this point, but I do remember having conversations with people as things were just getting canceled right and left. Like, what are we going to do? Yeah. And I think the through line of this year has been not just this seismic moment where sports shut down, not just in the United States, but around the world. And then gradually they started to come back. I think it was a strangely compelling year. You know, sports, we realized rather quickly, rather vital to people's happiness and the human condition. And we saw, you know, uh, when things just started rushing back in the end of the summer and the beginning of the fall, um, you know, a lot of gratitude, candidly, from people that things were returning. I wouldn't say normal because it's still not normal, not even close to it. Uh, But I think, Sports proved its relevancy throughout the year. Yeah, I agree with that. I thought, um, you know, it's funny. Some things kicked in the way I thought it would. You know, we had that whole Grantland Ringer background where we were always trying to create content when there were dead weeks, you know, and we would schedule way ahead of time. Uh, oh, look at that two-week stretch in August. Nothing's happening. We got to come up with stuff. So it was weird on the fly to be like, oh, nothing's happening. Like for the foreseeable future, we got to come up with stuff and everybody is doing the same thing, right? You're like, I, I was redrafting NBA drafts and we were treating the last dance like it was the basketball playoffs or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but because like, what else are we going to do? Everybody was in the habit of this is, this is how we do it. I just wonder, um, now that we're out of that, did we, did we, did we learn any positive lessons from how we had to ship Brian with, uh, with trying to get, trying to get coverage out of stuff that maybe is going backwards instead of forwards. Cause I think some of that stuff was positive. Some of it. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was a, I agree with Jason. Like it showed how smart everybody is. Cause yeah. you can't, when you don't have basketball, you can't just be like, all right, boss, see you in three months. <laughs> yeah. You gotta right. write something and people were really smart the way they figured it out. And I'll, I'll just say one more thing to what Jason said. When they couldn't go to the games or they couldn't go to the locker room or couldn't go to the bubble in Orlando, they wrote really good stuff. Like right. you, I read those pieces that were about the games. They weren't even just like, hey, in 1977, this weird thing happened. They were actually about like the NBA finals and they were good pieces, including on the ringer, by the way, because people are smart and they figured it out. Well, and didn't it, it didn't it kind of show a, a shine a spotlight on maybe locker room access in this day and age is completely overrated? I'm not saying the access of the human contact. It's just like the athletes don't need it anymore. We've talked about this on multiple sports reporters. They're not those interactions that people had in the 70s and 80s. They're not the same. They're completely orchestrated by the athlete at all time. So maybe we didn't need to do it the way we were doing it. It, it showed to me, I don't know if it was overrated, but it showed me how subtle it is. That it's not, it, it usually isn't LeBron had a great game or a bad game and I walked up to him in his locker and he revealed to me everything that happened and I wrote a really interesting piece. That happens sometimes, I guess. But it's more like the stuff those guys get is small. A lot of it's off the record. It's over the course of a season and it comes out like, you know, six months later or three weeks later or they hear something, right, in a kind of casual conversation. And they write a piece about that a couple weeks afterwards. I think that's the thing. It's really, really subtle because when I'm reading it, I allegedly do this for a living and I'm reading those pieces. I can't tell how they're different. Really? Yeah. You know, yeah. even if they were, if they're doing a zoom call, I can't, I can't look at that and be like, well, this other than it says 
comma said in a zoom call after the game, I can't tell the difference, but I think there is a difference. And I just think it's really hard for those of us who aren't in there to figure it out. Well, it does seem like, um, we've talked about this before too, the DM texting relationship that people can have with the principals, whether it's a GM, a coach, a player, even an owner, you don't need that locker room access in the same way. And, and I, I've never felt, I've always felt like when, when the answer to something is, this is how we do it, then, and, and nobody's kind of re-examining that and going, well, wait a second, well, why are we doing it this way? Especially with the NBA, which the guys are all their own, you know, brands at this point, they've become actors in the Vanity Fair in the nineties, where <laughs> if you want access to them, it's got to be on their terms. Right. And you know, it's got to be written a certain way. You might lose that access entirely. A lot of the times, well, a lot of times like going to a player, you don't go through the team anymore. You go through whoever their gatekeeper is or their handler or whoever is running PR for them. And so it's kind of all tied together. Right, Jason? Oh, absolutely. Uh, But I want to ask this, like if we're looking at some of the numbers as sports started to come back in the fall, you know, ratings were down considerably in many instances. And uh, there are all kinds of variables here. And uh, probably the prevailing issue was the fact that there was just so much stuff happening. And I think also people were at a point in their lives where they just wanted to be out doing stuff like the sort of home, like quarantine culture of sourdough and Netflix and watching eight hours of TV. I think it kind of waned by the end of the summer, early fall. And people just wanted to be out. Agreed. But I can't help but wonder if the fact that the media was stifled stifled by the technology, stifled by the events, stifled by the fact that they just, you know, couldn't go to all these things. Not everybody could afford or, you know, want to send people into the NBA bubble or on the road with an NFL team. If that kind of just crush of attention, the lack of it, perhaps contributed to that. You know, maybe there was some benefit. Maybe there was some usefulness to the ridiculousness of what we've all been around at Super Bowls and NBA Finals and Baseball World Series where you're like, why are there 485 reporters here? This is crazy. This makes no sense. You're all watching the same thing in the same press conferences. Does it have any value? And I, 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 I'm wondering... Maybe it did have something. Maybe it did contribute to this general elevation of conversation about sporting events that would make people want to tune in. That's interesting. Like so, so I agree that it feels bigger, and I always felt that at the finals. And I, I always would try to go to the finals every year, whether I was covering it or working for it, or just to go as a fan, because I love the finals specifically for like the three hours before the games yeah. and all the people on the court and just just felt bigger. And when the stakes are bigger, it puts more pressure on the performances. You're shining a bigger, hotter spotlight on everybody. And, you know, I, I, I think that was what was weird to me about the bubble, which I also kind of liked where it was the same venue every time it was just basically the teams and, you know, a a handful of uh, people from the organization and the coaches and that's it. And I think that's one of the reasons the play was so good because it was just consistency. But at the same time, I missed, I missed all of it. I missed the whole spectacle of the whole thing, which we're going to feel again at the Super Bowl. I, I, this is going to be the weirdest Super Bowl we've ever had. What's the Super Bowl going to be like, Brian? Yeah, I mean that's that's what's going to be felt most of all because I was I was at then so was Jason at the last Super Bowl this year, which was I felt like the last big sports writer conclave. 
that we had before the pandemic kicked in. And yeah. I know that because I saw 30 different sports writers at the Jason Isbell concert that week, you know, and <laughs> someday I will name them all and embarrass them publicly. Yeah. But yeah. And, and look, if we're being honest, part of what we do is give free advertising to these things. You know, yeah. we do critical coverage. We're smart about it. We're, we break it down. We, you know, give it to the owners and the players and all that stuff. But when you show up, you are giving, to Jason's point, free advertising to the event. You're making the event seem like a big deal because you're filing copy and doing podcasts and all that stuff. So, yeah, I do think there's something lost. You never thought you would feel nostalgia for Radio Row, but you do, <laughs> Brian. You know, like Radio Row will never be Radio Row, or, or at least not in the immediate future, the way that it always was. And, you know, that whole ridiculousness, I mean... Had you said to us, Brian, I remember roaming the uh, the uh, the corridors of the Hard Rock. What is it called? The Hard Rock Stadium. It's been called nineteen thousand things, but I think it's Hard Rock Stadium in Miami. And if I had said to you, "We ain't gonna be doing this for a really long time," your reaction at the time might have been, "Ah, well, okay, that's fine." But but no, uh, you know, it turned out we missed it rather quickly. Do you think looking back last nine months? Was there a big mistake anybody made from a sports media standpoint? Is there, is there something if we went back nine months ago that we would change? Because I just look at it from a ringer standpoint. Like we adapted really, especially on the audio side. I mean, this is the first time the three of us have ever done a podcast where we can all see each other. Sure. So for people who don't know, like Brian would come to my office, Kyle would be in my office as the producer and Jason would call on the phone and then when Jason was talking, Brian and I would just kind of look at each other, look around and, and, but trying to listen, but, you know, being careful not to interrupt. And, and to me, it's like crazy. We never thought at any point, Hey, we should just do this on zoom. Then we could all see each other and we'll just all <laughs> record from our ends. And I'm running a digital media company. It never occurred to any of us. And then it had to, you know, within eight days, we're like, well, fuck, we got to keep doing podcasts. How do we do it? And then you kind of figure it out and you figure out this new world where it's like, ah, this is actually better. I, it turns out Rosillo doesn't have to drive 40 minutes to my house on Sunday night so we can do NBA games. So there's subtle advancements like that that I think were helpful. Um, sure. But I look at like somebody, something like ESPN where I feel like they've been floundering this whole year for a variety of reasons. But like, I don't feel like ESPN has innovated or changed at all. Have you, do you guys feel that way? No, well, I would say, I'm sorry, Brian, you go first. Well, See, we uh, yeah, still interrupt I would, each other on zoom. There yeah. we go. We could do that here too. <laughs> no, I, I don't feel that they've really changed. I mean, it, look, they got the greatest, they got the greatest gift of pandemic programming, which was the last dance was ready to roll out or it was slightly sped along to roll out right at the beginning of this thing. And it was not one Michael Jordan documentary. It was a weekly Michael Jordan documentary that went right. on and on and on and on. And the longer, the better <laughs> from their perspective, right? Like we, I watched The Last Dance. I really enjoyed The Last Dance. I milked it for as much content on the press box as humanly possible. But, you know, some of those flashbacks to 1983 and 1984, I probably could have trimmed those out. But for <laughs> right. ESPN, it was a gold mine, literally a gold mine and probably a job saver in the long run because it just created so much attention for but that in the, in the same way, I think they would do it differently if they did it over again because what they didn't realize is they should they should have had like a whole podcast set up ahead of time and just basically like, how do we mine this for as much content as possible? The original plan before the pandemic was they were just going to run them all over the course of like a week and a half, right? 
It was yeah. five, five episodes. Yeah. And I think the pandemic made them think, well, and this was smart. Hey, we'll do it every week. We'll try to drag this out. We need something. Yeah. And that ended up being a really good model and antithetical to the binge watch model, which I think people are used to. What did, what did you see, Jason, from them this in 2020? Well, I would just ask really quickly, what do you guys think of the idea of like, had the last dance just gone according to plan? Had there been no pandemic and it just had run out the way they intended to run it out in the you know, interstitial time during the finals, would it have had a, a, the same kind of impact? I doubt it. It just ha- felt like such a big thundering moment because people were starved for something and it became a talking point in a way that television programs, especially sports documentaries, I mean, just unheard of. Um, would it have had that same kind of impact? I would say no. Yeah. I think uh I think part of what gave it the impact that it had was that we all needed, you know, like people like us were tra- treating it like it was the playoffs, but it also kept having these storylines pop up. You know, like Scotty Pippen was mad about this or <laughs> you know, the Den- the Dennis Rodman episode which I felt like all of us the Dennis Rodman stuff we've known for 30 years. It's like, all right, yeah, I know that story. I was bored by it. And then there's this whole new generation was like, whoa, Dennis Rodman. And then that was 48 <laughs> hours. And it it just had all these spinoffs. It was really kind of crazy to watch. It almost reminded me of when I was a, a kid, when there would be like, uh, you know, long miniseries like Rich Man, Poor Man or Roots. And all these, all these stories would pop out from those miniseries. And it would just like kind of be this all-encompassing thing for, I don't know, three weeks. That's what it felt like. Yeah, it was the Thornbirds uh, of sports media. I mean, it, re- it really was, where you couldn't wait to come back the next week and see it. No, that's I, I, I totally agree, and I would I think it would have been big, but just not quite. It wouldn't have been must see in the same way because it, it, it really it, wasn't it, anything else to watch. It didn't have. It wouldn't have had the oxygen as Bill pointed to. I mean, people were the next day relitigating Scottie Pippen's contract. I mean, in. 2020. It was amazing, yeah. you know, like, or who were the unsung heroes or did they give short thrift to Horace Grant? I mean, it was amazing that these conversations were actually happening. It felt like some sort of like role-playing game or something. But I would say with respect to ESPN and to a degree, every media company, including the one I worked for, that the challenge here was, you know, walking this line between the distraction of sports, sports as entertainment, which is principally what they are. They are a distraction from ordinary life to a very real, very dramatic situation, which was affecting ordinary life in a fatal way for some people. And it was not the kind of thing that lended itself to sort of glib commentary, right? You know, we're really good about just, you know, goofing off and being silly talking about sports. When things get a little bit more serious, Obviously, that's a bigger challenge, but it was this thing where they were kind of simultaneously happening, especially as the league started to roar back. So Brian wrote, you know, elegantly about this when it started to happen. But like, at what point does a writing about baseball stop paying so much attention to COVID positives and just start telling you about who's the best shortstop in the National League? Like, or do you do both? And and I think to a large degree, people found that middle rail impressively. But I think that was always a challenge. I know that where I worked, you know, it was a constant conversation of covering the sport journalistically was the most essential thing, but also acknowledging the fact that people watch sports for entertainment and distraction. What it really reminded me of, sorry to cut you off, Bill, what it really reminded me of was the football head injury thing on a much bigger scale. 
Because right. I think all of us, whenever you see those head injury stories, you're like, this is awful. Like, this is this is horrible. And I kind of am rethinking, you know, watching a football game and should I be doing this and should we be sending those guys out? And then the football game starts and I'm the biggest example of this. And I'm like, oh, football. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Okay. We're already and conditioned that way. Yeah. And as sports media people, you get this real talent for cognitive dissonance and you sort of do both, right? And then a head injury thing comes up and you talk about it and it's important, but then the game switches on, you just completely switch gears. And I thought that happened all during the pandemic and it's still happening up to the start of the NBA season. Yeah. I think it was such a grim situation just for all of us as people day to day. And you talk about the distraction thing. I totally agree where the COVID thing where, where games are getting either almost canceled, seem like they might get canceled. This team's missing all of their quarterbacks. And it's kind of like the show must go on and everybody reconciled, you know, whatever their own feelings were about it. And if it was like, you know what, I'm watching this stuff anyway, then you can't be morally judgmental about it. It, it hit a point where either you're in or you're out. And it's like, look, here are the risks. This is how it's going to go. There's going to be some games that will genuinely be compromised because the NFL is just moving along, moving along, moving along. And if you can't watch all of it while also bitching about it, it's like, it's, it's kind of one or the other. And I think all of us are so used to bitching about everything about football that we're just kind of used to it at this point. And it's even before the head injuries, you know, yeah. it's like you go back to how they treated players and the contracts and all that stuff in the seventies and eighties and steroids and then looking the other way with a lot of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I think what's, what's interesting to me is basketball is not wired that way. And basketball is so much more player friendly and so much more, um, cognizant of how, how people feel about them and feel about the league and feel about the players. And Adam Silver is somebody that is really, really wary and aware at all times. So what happens if we start hitting these same checkpoints with basketball? What I, like we're, we're taping this on a Wednesday. There's a situation tonight with the Rockets where they might, there might be a COVID. They might have to cancel this game. I feel like they're going to fold way more quickly on some of this stuff than the NFL did. The NFL is just like, nope, we're going, 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 going. What do you think? How do you think this plays out, Jason? Well, basketball teams also are quite a bit smaller. So the dynamics can change rather quickly if you have hmm. COVID positives or players, you know, under, you know, just uh, out for games. Um, you know, I, I think the most acute situation was college sports. You know, if you want to talk about something that requires cognitive dissonance, nothing requires more cognitive dissonance than like big time college sports, right? True. Because you're talking about a multi-billion dollar enterprise in which, you know, one party, the talent on the field are not compensated while everybody else is compensated at market rate. Um, and that was all before any of this. And then you had this situation which you know a little bit like the nfl leagues were conferences were announcing that they were going to do this and they're going to barge ahead and the reason they were doing it was clearly the money so if you were hanging to some sort of thread idea of you know amateurism that's all gone now and i'm very curious what athletes will do going forward because i think if you're a college athlete especially if you're in a high revenue sport you're quite aware now of the leverage that you have in the environment. You saw flashes of this late in the summer as some of the conferences were debating coming back or playing or not playing. Um, but I do think that that's going to be a significant change going forward. Uh, it's, you know, we were talking about ESPN a moment ago. 
you know, we announced just a couple of weeks ago, ESPN has a 300, is it a $300 million per year deal for the SEC, which is a major, major hike over what CBS was paying for the same. Uh, the money is still there, despite obviously the economic carnage has ensued. The money is still there. What's different now is I think the players are quite aware of, of, of their value here. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I just think sports makes all of us who work in the industry we work in make peace with it, you know, if it for better or worse, right? Sometimes it's temporary peace. Sometimes you just shut off your brain for three hours. Sometimes it's two hours. I mean, there's another Dan Snyder story this week. Sure. I mean, seriously, <laughs> how many people who watch Washington, you know, have how, how much of how much moral, you know, cognitive dissonance have they had to push through to make sure, that right. work? You, you, you don't even have to look into call, uh, you know, high revenue college sports or, or professional sports. I mean, everybody on this call is a parent who has kids who are playing sports. And during this pandemic, if you were in a place where sports were starting to crawl back, you were confronted with this question of like, okay, is this safe? Do we do this? And you were evaluating those trade-offs personally. You were thinking about what's important here. What And, and I can tell you, you know, in my home that like, I wanted the kids outside. I wanted them running around. If I felt like they were making uh, necessary precautions and things like that, yeah, get out there. Let's play. Let's do this. Um, so this was a very unusual circumstance in which the conditions were applied not just to the highest levels of sports, the marquee stuff that we all pay attention to, but everybody's ordinary lives. Well, and you can also see kind of how semi-psychotic some people are about this stuff, even at the youth sports level. You yes. know, and I, I've dealt with it. My daughter's playing club and she has a four-day tournament in Arizona for, you know, in January. And it seems like it's going to happen. And the case for it is, hey, it's soccer. It's outdoors. The people aren't really near each other that much. You can talk yourself into this whole reality of it. But the bottom line is in California, nobody's playing soccer. Nobody's doing any outdoor oh. stuff. They don't, they, but in Arizona, it's like, cool, come here. So now <laughs> you have all these parents driving to Arizona from California, six, seven hours for baseball and lacrosse and soccer. And they're all justifying it in their own ways, right? Whether it's my kid wants a college scholarship. He only has three years left. He has to be seen by the coaches or I just want my kids to be outside and not be indoors playing video games all day. I'm willing to take the risk. And it's really up to each person, I guess. It turns you into the 49ers. <laughs> right. Got to go to Arizona. Arizona. So it's like the youth sports, like offshore casino, basically. Like it's yeah. uh, subject to yeah, um, fight Island. The, of, but the uh, amazing thing to me, the <laughs> yeah. amazing thing to me is that Nevada ceded the territory to Arizona. You would think like who, <laughs> who would have been more anxious to grab this territory than Nevada? And Arizona is like, no, no, hold my beer. And they took it. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's so crazy, but you're right. It's like a little microcosm of all the big pro and college sports stuff. That was Yeah. Saying. Yeah, and and I and I think in in many instances too, it created this weird uh, mindset of sports fans because they were sitting there saying, "Well, why aren't they playing pro sports? My kids playing little league. What's going on? How come my college team is playing a reduced schedule? Well, my kid just finished, you know, youth soccer. Um, around the rest of the country, youth sports roared back rather quickly. You know, we're seeing, you know, um, that not every application of rules was the smartest, but uh, it does seem like uh, there was a little bit of, of, you know, conflict in the way that various sports across people's lives came back. 
it's fucking weird. And it's one of those things you can try to pretend it's not happening, but it's still weird. Like last night watching Warriors Nets, Steve Kerr's got a mask on. Yeah. He's trying to coach. He's pulling the mask down to so his player can hear him and then realizes he can't do that. And he's pulling it up and you're just they're cutting the sidelines and his he's just tucking his mask up and down. It's like, what are we watching? And meanwhile, the players are on the court and they're not wearing masks. So it's like, all right, so and then you have the media reporters, like the sideline reporters, and they have the masks on. And uh-huh. um, you yeah. just kind of get used to it. But I do I do wonder, like watching hardwood classics. 25 years from now, one of these games be like, what the fuck was going on in 2020? Why did the coach have a mask on? This is, this is crazy. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back and hit some more of this stuff. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe Spring. On the way, warmer temperatures, more time outside, more time away from your home. Do yourself a favor. Make sure you're doing what you can to protect your place and get a Simply Safe home security system. Comprehensive protection for your whole home, a great way to keep you and your loved ones safe. What if you're going out for Easter for six hours? You don't think the burglars are going to figure that out? That y'all y'all packed up your car at like 1130 on Easter and you drove off somewhere? Yeah, all they need is an hour. I'm not the only one singing Simply Safe's praises. Simply Safe, named best home security system in 2024 by US News and World Report, recognized for the best customer service and home security by Newsweek. Protect your home today. I use Simply Safe and love it. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when they sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash BS. Don't wait. That is simplysafe.com slash BS. Uh, Jason, you thought the sports media event of the year was? All right. I never would have said in a million years that the most important sporting event of a calendar would ever be the NFL draft, but I kind of feel it was the NFL draft. Uh, it is a absurd piece of theater in an ordinary year. Uh, it's effectively a bunch of telephone calls. Um, when ESPN originally went to the league and Pete Rosell and said they wanted to televise it, the league was completely baffled, but we've seen how crazy it's become. It's become a traveling circus. And that obviously wasn't possible. They did it in April this year. They ran it on time against a lot of people's advisements. And yet they made it work. It was, you know, for a league that is um, so associated with bombast and, you know, uh, spending money when you didn't need to spend money, uh, it had a folksy feel. You had Roger Goodell squirreled away in his basement, uh, you know, in a cozy Mr. Rogers sweater. You had the athletes at home among their closest loved ones at a time when that's basically what everybody was doing. You had the coaches in their weird rec rooms with their families. Coaches don't spend time with their families. What the heck is going on? And of course, um, you had the marvelous scene of uh, Bill Belichick's dog uh, sitting at the draft table in Nantucket. I mean, there, there was nothing not to like. Um, and, I, I, and I think also they did a kind of funny thing where they had a bunch of different telecasts, right? You had kind of the, you know, heart-singy stories, you know, mainstreamy kind of thing. And then you had the wonky fantasy style. But I mean, just the whole event uh, worked in a way that I just, you know, didn't expect. Unless you were accidentally watching the, the tragedy porn telecast versus the uh, the football telecast, which I was watching on ABC going, what the fuck is going on? What, what is this? Where's like the football conversation? Not realizing that I was on the tragedy porn channel. 
I'm so glad you mentioned that. That was just such one of the weirder sports media things of the whole year was the ABC telecast of the draft. Because here's on ESPN, as Jason mentions, they're being so they're being different, right? Let's get let's get cameras and Zoom calls and coaches and like really figure this out. And then the other way is kind of going hard toward like 1985, you know, real people media. You know, we're going to tell human stories here, folks. And you're like, whoa, what? Who who is well, this for? You know. And then the NBA draft did it too. And this is when it all made sense to me because I had the NBA draft on in my house, but then I left and came out here because I knew I'd do a podcast. I wanted the TV just just didn't want people interrupting me, but I had left the TV on and my wife came out after like pick 12 and was like, what's going on with this draft? I've cried three times. <laughs> and, and I was like, Oh, now I get it. You're this draft telecast is not for me. I'm going to watch anyway. You have me, you have me, but you don't have my wife. But if you're telling these stories, maybe you pour in. She doesn't care about the draft. She doesn't care where Obi Toppin goes. But if there's some story about this guy, he's found, his father died, and blah, blah, blah. And this is, you know, it, it kind of ties into another topic that I think is really fascinating. The fact that Fox paid a premium price for Tom Rinaldi, who is the premium guy at this stuff. Um, and it's become this genre that I do feel like Sports Illustrated, Gary Smith, people like that had hit it pretty hard in one era. And now it's kind of crossed over to TV and, and Rinaldi was the one that perfected it. But Curtis, did you ever think you'd see Tom Rinaldi make $2 million a year? I didn't. And I was watching game day this week. And I love college game day. That's that and inside the NBA are probably the two studio shows or pregame shows that I actually watch and I genuinely enjoy. And they cut to the Rinaldi segment. And it was on the University of Alabama receivers having a great year. And his nugget from that was that the guy stays after practice and catches a lot of balls after practice. Which is interesting, I guess. But let's face it, that's a fairly common nugget among successful athletes. Yeah. But it had the string music going in the background. Do 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 and that kind of slow-mo of him with the jugs machine and running down. And I'm like, is there just one key that we can do all these stories in? It's it's there's there's one guy making all the music. Yeah, it's like we're the Terrence Malick and we're staring up at the cosmos, but it's like he's just staying after practice. What are we, what are, what is going on here? Isn't this a throwback in ways? This is Rune Arledge theory. This is Dick Ebersol theory, right? The idea that to mainstream a sport to get more people in, you see it. It's it's been an epidemic at the Olympics forever. The idea that you know to get people to follow along athletes and, you know, the Olympics have a harder ask. You're asking people to, you know, all of a sudden get excited about archery. Um, no offense to archery. Um, but yeah, you, know, yeah, I, you, you got to keep your standing with all the fringe sports, <laughs> archery, cycling. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but there is, you know, there's this belief, I think, especially in broadcast sports media that, you know, you're going for the widest audience possible. And how do you bring in the widest audience possible? Well, then you have to bring in an emotional, um, uh, uh, immediacy to all this stuff. You have to remind people about the bad things that have happened along the way. And I think that as um, television and, you know, the internet have stratified everything, it's easier to subsist on niche. You know, the idea that you can be super wonky and, you know, it's analytics specific or gambling specific, and you don't have to appeal to the widest possible audience. So when you see it, when you see it executed, in you know sports now it feels stranger than it may have once well 
I remember really when this started. I remember the patient zero for this era was the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, the Summer Olympics. This was when they 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 had had the pieces in the previous Olympics, but that was the one where they're just like, we're going for it this year. Hey, whoever the athlete is, boom, let's throw to this five minute story about blank. And people hated it. And it was early internet. I remember I was on my own at that time website just... It was great for me. I'm like bitter guy and, you know, with my old, blog, old sports <laughs> blog, just attacking everybody. And like, this is great. This is, I could get two weeks out of just making fun of this, but this is now 20 years later. It'd be the equivalent of we're having this podcast right now and it'd be like, and you know, you know, who really feels strongly about this, who lost his relative recently is Brian Curtis, Brian. And then we just did a five minute tangent on you just telling this really sad story about like your great uncle who just passed away. And, and I went to the hospital bed and blah, blah, blah. And Kyle starts playing music and, and, it, and then it's just like, all right, back to the podcast. <laughs> That's what this coverage is now. I don't understand it. And I, it really feels like Bill and you and I have had this conversation over the last decade, many times. Remember when we felt like sports profiles, like written profiles were broken because yes. they all became sob stories. Yes. Everybody was doing Gary Smith. And I yeah. like, reading a good weeper once in a while. I write them every once in a while, but there's got to be other keys you can work in. And I feel TV profiles right now, generally speaking, are pretty broken because they're all in that key. It's all about that. And it's like, you can do a funny one. You can do one that's just neutral. You can do one that doesn't have throbbing music <laughs> on the background. And I'd just say the same thing about written stuff. People get in a rut and it feels... I don't believe that's the only way to appeal to non-sports fans is that it has to be a tragedy or a, a good cry. I really it's don't. It's getting worse though, not better, which is the part, that part that scares me heading into 2021. I, I don't know if it's, I, I, I would say that the, the contrary is true that like in sports media, especially even in television media has become the domain of specialists that, you know, it's very, I was listening to Brian and Jim Gray the other day and I was like, this kind of career won't be replicated. You're not going to like do every sport. You know, you're just, you're going to be a, the value, the superstars, the people who are paid the most and are emulated by the people coming up are the Woj's and the Schefter's, and, you know, the people who have inside hardcore information about one thing. They're not trying to do everything. They're not trying to be Al Michaels or Cosell or they're, they're one thing. And, you know, so again, I feel like the, 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 the emotional stuff it stands out because a lot of the time, the stuff that people are talking about on television is very sort of specific, arcane conversation. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this this weekend because I really enjoyed Akeem Talib. He's done two football games. He's just so different than all the other announcers that it actually makes you notice how generic most of the other color guys on the other football games are, where it just doing that pros versus Joe's and just all cliche left and right. And, you know, he's needs more time and he, he's, he's blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it feels like it's karaoke. And then Tlaib came in and he was just interesting. Like I wanted to hang out with him. It was the same way I felt, you know, he's obviously really, really raw and would talk over play by play and made, you know, a ton of mistakes that could be corrected. But I was just so happy. It was somebody who was kind of swimming against the stream, which I, I do. It just feels like this cookie cutter. You really notice it on the Sunday night NBC when people are missing and then people move around and then it's like a different host because Tariko has to host it. So now we have Liam McHugh and then, but this person's out too. We're going to shove this in, but it's basically the exact same show with people just performing the roles. And 
it's like, what is this? Right? Like, how did we get here? And I think there's a pandemic explanation for that. Because remember at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think I even wrote this about, could we totally reimagine sports TV? Could we reimagine yeah. these games? We don't have fans. You know, we need fake crowd. Are we just going to completely? And the conclusion that I think everybody came to was, actually, this is the one thing you want to watch in its regular form during the pandemic. You want a basketball game to look like a basketball game. You want NFL to look like NFL. So let's, other than keeping the announcers home, which they did last night and NBA and for the NBA opener, let's just make this as as normal as possible. Let's not change any of the grammar of this thing. And I think that's, I think we would have considered that a surprise in April. That, well, remember, ba- remember baseball, how weird it was the, yeah. the first like month of baseball. We were like, this just sucks. I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> and then they tried to fix it. They to mix results. It yeah, makes results. Yeah. I noticed it in the world series, but we had a good world series this year. And, and, uh, there's so much sort of interstitial fan stuff in a world series game. You think about it, like in the past years of like, you know, the Cubs fans with the rally caps or the Red Sox fans before 2004, like, you know, gripping their mittens in the cold and just everybody freaking out. And that was always the go-to thing for a television producer was to turn to the, you know, panicking fans. And well, cause you had 30 seconds between each pitch. So you would just cut to the stands <laughs> and like, Oh, there's a terrified six-year-old who exactly. feels like his world's collapsing. 100%. So then you have to do, okay, well, I don't have that available to me. I can't go to the Larry King cut out behind the dugout. That's just too weird. I'm going to go to the players and the players became more integral to the theater. And you actually felt, I felt more connected. Like I didn't know much about the Tampa Bay Rays, but I felt like I knew them by the end of the world series because I was constantly just kind of doing their body language. And the same goes to the NBA at the Nets uh, Warriors game last night. And one of the things that I don't know if television is conveying this in interesting ways, but you see it that the players on the bench in this kind of weird tiered bench thing that they have behind the benches now where, you know, they have multiple players, you know, going back a few rows are really, really into the games and you can hear what they're saying to their teammates and you can see them celebrate after big dunks or Mm. defensive plays. And there's a colleague, you know, feels a little bit like college basketball in a fun way. Um, All that stuff would be drowned out in a standard crowd, you know, stadium environment. Um, But I, I think where telecasts could get more innovative is to lean into more of that and show you more of that. They did a little bit of the bubble. I think you'd do more. I uh, I don't know how they fixed the baseball thing without the fans. I never. It was it was weird. There were certain sports that I never realized how important random shots of fans were to my experience of watching the sport. Tennis was another one. Yeah, I I, I got I really liked the U.S. Open. I would always watch you know at least some of the major matches. I didn't watch any of the U.S. Open. It was too weird for me. Some people liked it. I had friends that were like it was awesome. I love just hearing the ball and the, and the, the sounds of the players. I was like, I thought it sucked. I never realized how much I relied on the noise of the crowd and the oohs and the ahs and kind of figuring out who they're rooting for. It was almost like wrestling. Wrestling's another one that's really suffered. But at some point, the crowd drifts to one of the two players. And sometimes it would to a surprising result. We're like, wow. They want that person to win. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that. Or, wow, this crowd's not really in a serena. That's, that's odd. Or whatever, and just removing that maybe like watching tennis less. Did you have another sport like that, Brian? Yeah, well, I, I think last night we've we've gotten so used to fake crowd noise, but fake crowd noise during the Lakers ring ceremony 
was a really weird one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're getting it. And you, cause I don't think that button is on the, is on the console that these guys are pushing. You know, what is, yeah. what is like when the, like the Lakers 12th man gets his ring? Like what, what's that sound that the crowd makes, you know, versus we know what the LeBron sound is, but what is that sound? It like should be like down? a, like a very polite applause sound. They haven't, they haven't mastered that <laughs> one yet. Just, just, yeah. Just, just this. I would have said college football because that's another one where the crowd's just so into it in home stadiums. But you know what? You watch these college games and half of them had tons of fans. In this <laughs> I was about to say, true. there were 20,000 people at a lot of those games. Yeah. Football, football really worked because you realize like, oh, I don't, I, they just show the field and the players of the field and you, unless they're cutting away to the crowd, I'm not even thinking that there's a crowd there, you know, and then they'll cut to them. But I, I actually thought football has been successful. I don't know if you guys found this, but I found the fan shot to be really fraught this year. You mentioned, Bill, this is like a standard of sports TV. We always see go to the fans. But half the time, and maybe this is mostly a college football thing, they'd cut to them and the people just wouldn't be wearing masks or they'd have the mask down on the neck kind and of then thing. You're, then you're like, what the fuck? And I've never thought the fan shot could actually be fraught. And, yeah. and be like this weird public health warning. And I was like, Ooh, <laughs> that makes me feel bad. Yeah. I was assumed like with the NFL that they'd cut to the luxury box and we just see both crafts sitting there with no bass or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but that owners, even Jerry Jones, it seemed like oh, yeah. they're pretty diligent with it. Um, how did it affect the tour de France? Jason? <laughs> uh, it was a little all over the place. I mean, the tour de France is a, uh, and I appreciate the, uh, uh cycling, uh, question. You're welcome. Uh, it, uh, you know, if you had asked me uh, in April, a sporting event that would not happen, I would have picked the Tour de France simply because it's, you know, a month long or a three week long bike race through the mountains of uh, France uh, outdoors, you know, and moving place to place every single day. Uh, it worked. They didn't get shut down. There were, I, I can't remember. I don't believe there were any sort of positive tests or certainly anything that were threatening to shut it down. Uh, but uh, I feel like they got lucky. You know, and, and I'm happy that they pulled it off. And there was an actually a very exciting race this year, as I'm sure both of you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, it felt like a little bit of caution no. thrown to the wind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I shake it our heads like, what? <laughs> I have one other big topic, but we're taking one more break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside LDA 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you've side hustled your way to playoff tickets, auctioned off those vintage jerseys, or started a sports podcast of your own, hey, you're like me, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com slash guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. So I look at 2020 
we covered a lot of the stuff that I think I'll remember from a sports media standpoint. The two that we haven't yet. One is the gambling piece and the influx of um initially it was fantasy. Fantasy became the gateway to the gambling stuff. Obviously, I'm delighted. I've loved gambling forever. We certainly we have a big deal of FanDuel. It's not like we're not partaking. Last night, uh FanDuel did a deal with Barkley. And on inside the NBA, Chuck's doing odds boosts and, you know, and, and really leaning into it. And it struck me like gambling, I, I feel like is the thing to watch this decade for how it's going to affect sports and how people cater the content to it and how people kind of get used to it and how they get used to it with the dialogue and the language and stuff. You could see it in the crazy um, Tyson Roy Jones fight, which was you know, just a, one of the more bizarre TV nights of the year, but DraftKings is running the odds during each round as Tyson seems to be beating Jones. And then at one point, one point he's, uh, like a 3000 to one favorite. I can't even remember. Meanwhile, like it ends up being a draw, but the odds were just so omnipresent during that whole night. Um, and I feel like that's happening more and more with, sports that really resisted this like basketball and football specifically where this was this third rail. I was even thinking about when Paul Hornig died recently, Paul Hornig got suspended for a whole year um, yep. because he was gambling, not even on his own team. And then you think about all the Pete Rose stuff and Pete Rose not being on now gambling is just accepted and it's part of it. And people understand the language. Where does this go, Brian? Well, I'm always struck when I turn on the NFL and I see like a graphic of Terry Bradshaw holding a briefcase like he's a heel wrestling manager, you know, from right. the eighties. That's always kind of amazing to your question about fantasy. Do we think gambling will make it into the mainstream sports shows to a greater degree? Because fantasy yes. is huge right now, right? Like Matt, you know, there's a Matthew Barry, there's fantasy shows, there's fantasy writers, but they haven't quite crept onto the set of like the Fox NFL pregame show. You but know, when it or, does creep in there, it's always super awkward, right? Where they're always like, I bet that helps your fantasy team. Like after like an 80 yard touchdown or something. And it just feels like forced every time. Exactly. It still feels like it's over at a different table, you know, yeah. like, oh, that's something over there. But we feel that gambling is going to make that transition more than fantasy ever managed to. I think it will because there's more money at stake. And I think the leagues are active participants. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, you know, there are any number of people who are involved in um, sports gambling startups as these things become increasingly state legal, uh, who will tell you that this is a growth industry with no end in sight. I, I just don't know what the, you know, broad, you know, how broad the appeal is. I, I don't doubt for one minute that there it's a huge industry and it will get bigger. Uh, I'm just curious at what point does it, as you say, sort of infiltrate telecasts or alienate people. You know, I had a conversation. I talked to a number of people who are running sports books uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And one of them said, like, I asked about, like, do you think that, because we were talking about the golf, there was a, one of those um, golf uh, one-off exhibitions where there was a lot of the gambling material was on the screen yeah, and such. And I said, do you think we're going to see that across sports? Will we be seeing that in, you know, major leagues? And this person said, I, I, I hope not. And that, which surprised me because I figured they, they would want that. And they said, you know, it you 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 risk alienating a part of the audience, and the most important thing for these sports is to be wildly popular to as broad a people. We will get them. We will grab them if they're looking for like you know extra excitement in their passion. But I don't think he, he was resistant to the idea that this is somehow just you know it was just naturally going to happen because 
as these things become increasingly legal, you're going to want more of it. I think the thing that's shifted, and I remember being at page two in like 01 and 02 when they really didn't want me to write about gambling on, you know, I wanted to do my weekly football column that I had done on my old website. And it was like a real battle. I don't, I don't even think I fully did it until 2004 with the lines. Yeah. And they were like, we, we just, we don't want to dabble in that. And Berman would do, be doing his picks. He was the only one on the channel that really acknowledged it, but it was always wink, wink. It was always like, I see the bills winning, but maybe not by as many points as some people think they should win. I see it being 20 and 24. So he'd be picking the bills not to cover mm-hmm. and you'd be like, Oh, I get it. So it was like this secret language. I think it's shifted now to the point that the one thing I've really noticed is people are way more educated in stuff like Mahomes being the MVP favorite. His odds have dropped. Kyler Murray's making a big run or or the way they talk about the NBA finals now, where it's like Brooklyn's six to one. They have the third best odds. I think people get that piece of it. And I, I think the media members are more and more able to weave that into, to how they talk about it. But what's interesting is people still don't understand. I don't think a lot of people, how they come up with the odds and that their goal is for the odds to just get people to bet both sides. They're trying to take off the risk, the casinos, the bookmakers, whatever. So if they make like, this was always the Red Sox thing pre 2004, Vegas would make the Red Sox, you know, five to one to win the world series. They should have been 21. They'd be like, Oh, we know these shithead idiot Red Sox fans are going to come bet the Red Sox. Anyway, we'll just make the odds lower. Um, that's the part people don't get yet. I don't feel like. Didn't America get a giant lesson in how this all works on election night? Watching me, yeah. So I wanted to bring that up. That that <laughs> so that was the most fascinating thing, right? Where that became the most incredible subplot of that night: the offshore markets in Europe and this crazy Trump money that was was coming in, and and meanwhile they were just jacking the odds because they knew Trump had all these crazy people that were betting on them. But you've Brian, you've seen that with Dallas every year. The Cowboys always get treated oh. like they're one of the four best NFL teams. Meanwhile, they haven't made the Super Bowl in 25 years. Thank God I'm not one of those stupid people yeah. dumping <laughs> Super Bowl money. I just want to know, is the the fan that loves the Tom Rinaldi pregame piece, do they also want the odds on the screen during a game? Have we seen that crossover? That's when I know that the worlds will have truly crossed over. That will be, yeah, like crossing the crossing the beams in Ghostbusters or something. I just think it's going to be more and more part of this because there's too much money at stake. And the other thing is, I think it's 21 states are legal now, maybe something like that. So somewhere between 19 and 21, there's some big states that aren't legal. California's not legal. Yeah. Um, New yeah. York's not legal. Although you can drive across state lines. I have friends who have done this, drive right over the state line to New Jersey, put bets in, drive back. Yeah. Um, in the next three years, I would say probably at least two thirds of the states will be legal. And, you know, when you think about it, Brian lives here in California with me. It's kind of hard to fathom. California wouldn't be looking for another revenue source when you see what a freaking disaster it is here right now. Like it would kind of be cool to have more money coming in. So I don't, at some point that's gotta be legal, but it does, it just feels like it's been a subplot this year because it feels way more mainstream than it used to be. And, and I do feel like the leagues are embracing it now, whereas before it was this thing you stayed away from. So I don't know. Anything else you want to hit on that? Or you want to move on? I would just say that, like, I think that 
we're in a media environment now where you're going to be able to give that to people who want it rather easily. You know, it's not terribly hard to create alternative broadcasts for people who are very, very much looking for live betting odds. And I think that, you know, every single sporting event now has multiple feeds, a big one at least, has multiple feeds, and it wouldn't be terribly hard to do that. I would be very curious uh, if you reach a point where the sort of marquee telecast of a game integrates lots of gambling, real-time gambling information into that, how that could work. I mean, could you have a three-person Monday night football booth where the third person was kind of a prognosticator? I don't know. Well, I, you could argue it would make the broadcast more interesting. I absolutely because it would be like people. they could come back from commercial and be like, "Hey, the live betting over that commercial, people seem to think the Chiefs are going to come back, and yet they're down ten. There's five minutes left. What do you think of that, Lewis? And then that would just be how they did it. Shouldn't we bring him in like Mike Pereira? Oh, well, we got a big gambling oh, yeah. moment here. Can you come on and explain the stakes? Of this field goal right Honestly, here? I'd rather have that than Steve Javi just agreeing with whatever the call on the floor was <laughs> for the hundredth straight time. Right? If we're going to have experts, at least have a, have a gambler. This leads me to my next thing. This is more... It's, a, it's not a prediction as much as... I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, and it's something we've predicted in the past, and now it's making me wonder whether it'll ever happen. I'm sure we have as sports reporters from the last three years anticipating that coverage was going to change. And like Jason just mentioned about different broadcasts catered to different people. There was a moment at ESPN where they, I forget what college, it was the big college game of the year and they just put it on every channel, right? And it was a different broadcast tailored to each person. And it seemed like this was going to be potentially a little bit of what the future of sports coverage would look like. Like, don't just watch our TNT feed. You could watch these feeds here, 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 and here and enjoy these different announcers. That hasn't happened yet. And now we're heading to 2021 and we're basically in the same spot we're in in 2014. Um, Jason, why hasn't that happened yet? Probably a little expensive. I have to imagine that, you know, to have multiple productions of even a single event is, uh, you know, there's involved personnel and expense. And at times when people are shedding payroll, that's probably a complication. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, sports media and, and cable, and you look at what ESPN has been going through the last bunch of years and like the talk about maybe Monday Night Football should be an ABC product. It doesn't necessarily have to be a cable product. They have sort of refallen in love with the idea of scale as much mass audience as possible. We don't necessarily have to grow ESPN. Let's get the most numbers we can possibly get for our Monday Night Football game. Um, maybe sort of stratifying it further is a little bit... Um, challenging right now but i think the more existential question for all of these networks is just you know and we have young kids in our homes and we know what it's like to watch people who are not our age um watch sports and they don't watch it in the linear fashion that we all grew up watching it they watch it in chunks and segments they don't fear missing things they don't feel like they have to be in front of it every single second they know they're going to get whatever they want online immediately and what that does to traditional broadcasting and the way that sports are presented, I think, is the big headache. Because if you're if you're if you ha are ushering in a generation of people who are not like sitting down to watch the first quarter of a football game or a basketball game or a baseball game right through, what are you programming for? Like, how are you doing this? And, and it can't all just be for geezers like us. Well, that's the big fear, right? Is their biggest fear is my son. My 13-year-old son, 
who follows the NBA through 2K, the video game he plays, TikTok and Instagram. And like yesterday, he came and he watched he watched Brooklyn with me because he just wanted to see KD and Kyrie. And he watched, I don't know, an hour and a half of the game. Then it was a blowout and he left. But he feels like he's following the league at the same level that I follow it on fucking TikTok and Instagram. And exactly. I got to say, like, he's not missing much. He knows what all the stories are. He knows, like, he got excited about LaMelo Ball. He said, Dad, LaMelo, he's all over TikTok right now. And to him, that means LaMelo is, you know, on his way up. He didn't need to watch the preseason game, but I actually watched LaMelo in the preseason, one of the games, and kind of had to say, I arrived at the same conclusion my son did from some of these clips. So if right. I'm running a league like the NBA, that would be the one where I wouldn't, how do you wrap your head around that, Brian, where it's like, how do we know this is how kids are watching our sport? Some of them are still watching it conventionally, but we have this whole other audience that's kind of consuming it this way. And, and they still love our league, but we can't monetize them. They don't, we can't turn them into ratings. Um, what do we do? Yeah. And my, my kids thankfully have, um, inherited my athletic genes. So they're going to be sports TV watchers rather than people mm. that get called to go to out of state tournaments. I can already predict that one, <laughs> uh, even though they're pretty young, but I, I would just say that is a huge problem of the future, but guess what the present is it's sports on television, right? Yeah. And when we were kids, sports was one of the popular things on television right now. Sports is the popular thing on television and the pandemic, if anything, just proved that. You know, yeah. whatever you want to say, and you know how much I love sports TV ratings, whatever you want to look at those numbers and this is down, this is out. It's the most, it's the thing. It is what people are watching. So there's this very lucrative present to be had for the next several years. The and networks are about to give the NFL a bazillion dollars for the, for the next couple of years. And, and I agree with you, there is this sort of existential thing and it's probably about all media, not just sports. Like what are people going to watch? How are they going to watch it? But right now and for the foreseeable future, Sports sort of is television and live television anyway, you know, beyond a few series and things that break through. And I don't know. It just feels like that's, that's the story to me at the moment. It's the Mandalorian Cobra Kai and live sports. Yeah. And not in that order, by the way. <laughs> I wonder if there is a conversation that's happening in all these leagues about something that newspapers started to start to panic about in the late nineties and the aughts was, are we giving all of it away for free. What mistake are we doing here? Because as you said, yeah, LaMelo Ball is a sensation on TikTok, social media, and so on that like, but that's because that content is chipped up and thrown around the internet and no one's like chasing the rights down and making a problem for the people who are posting that stuff. Um, and the leagues have embraced it under the idea that, you know, you're creating awareness, you're building fans and so on. But at a certain point, as you said, you're not monetizing any of that fan interest and that's what television effectively was it was the conduit through which you could monetize the audience come to an advertiser and say it's worth this and that's where all those billions of dollars started to flow into the game and if you lose that you've got to get it from other places and to go back to what we were talking before with gambling that's a huge part of why leagues have put their arms around gambling is it's a hedge against this audience decline or the way that television money will go well, it's funny. Ratings are going down and will continue to go down. And we don't need to litigate what happened in the NBA because there's seven different reasons why that happened. But I think the prices are going to still go up. And that's something that has not changed really since the 80s. Um, 
they'll be able to command more for their games because there's more people competing for those rights right now. Whether you're a league like the NBA, looking long-term, like we should just own all of this. Um, and whether there's going to be a moment, like what happened with movies this year with HBO Max, where they're like, fuck it. Movie theaters are out. We're, we're going direct to the consumer. And I guess that would be a question for me for 2021. That happened so abruptly. It was something everybody had talked about for a couple of years. Oh, that someday this could happen. Um, yeah, someday could we get movies at home? That would be cool. I remember having conversations on this podcast. I would pay $50 for this movie right now instead of going to the theater. And now that's where things are going. That's where Disney Plus and HBO Max. Is it realistic for a place like ESPN to just be like, fuck it. We're, we're, we're breaking our cable deals or we're out of our cable deals or we're not, we're just not going to be in that business anymore. We're moving everything to ESPN a lot sooner than people thought. Cause I feel like it is realistic. It's funny. What I thought you were going to say is, is it realistic for the NBA to say, Hey, we're not making any more television deals. We're just going to sell you NBA games from our own. I app. think, I think it would be realistic if they didn't have so many competitors for the rights right now, you know, that, yeah. if that's where we are. Right. Yeah. Because, because there's so much money to be made. So much money to be made from not only the networks, but an Amazon peeking in there and all that kind of stuff right at this moment. So I think that's a ways off. Especially like how Bezos works, where Bezos just looks at stuff and goes, groceries. I'm just gonna own that. And then it's like, wait, what's he doing? And it's like, oh, he's he bought Whole Foods. Oh, they're they're now gonna ship groceries to us. And like if he just looks at it and goes, the NBA. I'll right. just take league pass. Right. And that's how I'll get into sports and watch every NBA game here. Um, I still feel like the NBA values the networks. And I think all the, all the sports realize like ultimately it's a huge fucking country. Not everybody's going to stream games and you want to be in as many places as possible. But I do, I do wonder if either a league or a network is abruptly going to shift and we're all going to be like, what happened? The same way HBO Max, HBO Max, that was inconceivable a year ago that somebody was going to do that. Yeah. And, but that's also like a, that's an environmental change. What we're ha what's happening, you know, you're watching it at home as opposed to in a theater. What's happening in sports is a behavioral change. It's just the way that people consume sports and, 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 and sports will get a stay on this for a whole bunch of years, because as you point out, there are all these digital players out there for whom, you know, they can afford it, first of all. But secondly, it's just a way of like, you know, making new customers, creating, you know, prime interest. If having the NFL as a way to retain prime membership or boost prime membership, then it makes sense for Amazon. It doesn't have to make sense on its own. It's actually in a weird way, a return to kind of the days of like loss leading, right? With network mm. buying sports because it was a way to propel their primetime lineups. I mean, that was why you overpaid for Sunday football was that it was a way to sell, you know, your new sitcoms and dramas and all that. And I think that yeah, there's a longer runway than we think for all these sports because of these digital players. But I think where you'll see changes that, you know, even for behemoths in television, the economics will make less sense. Like you're starting to see, you know, networks realize that some of these deals may have been too long or overpaid. And the idea you just could go on a spree and snap up everything may not make the most sense if you're just a traditional television company. Feels like that's where that's headed. Um, last topic, then we'll go. The uh, We never really talked about how media-friendly um, 
the athlete relationship is. And that was the other big takeaway from 2020 is, um, and I, I think there's a variety of reasons and I've talked about it on the, on the pod, but I don't want to spend a hundred minutes on it, but, um, the, the friendly nature of the coverage now, and you really notice it, I think in the NBA more than anything, even during free agency signings where you get to like the Moharkless level of a signing and the person who breaks the story that Mo Harkless has signed with Miami. And he's like, he's expected to have a dramatic influence on their three. And I'm like, Mo Harkless, I like him, but he's been on six teams. Um, I, I, I'm really suspicious at all times now in a way that I can't remember being before of people's motivations who cover different sports, the relationships with the athletes, why they were chosen for the story, why they were chosen for the scoop, how they got it. And just the favor trading that goes on that basically has been what celebrity journalism would happen to it really since the 1980s. And Brian has written about that and about the Vanity Fair piece and how that's it kind of started to become what is sports journalism. Brian, have we, are we hitting a point when this is a seesaw that is just going to tip over? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I see moments when it feels like that, when it feels like we've gotten, and by the way, we should know this is a dramatic shift from when we were all growing and not just growing up, but what, like 20 years ago. Yeah. The and, Peter Vesey era, as Jason calls it. <laughs> yeah, where it was like calling the media pro player or wondering if certain, you know, we certainly reporters had, you know, rapports with players and stood up for players and all that stuff. But just thinking of the sports media as overwhelmingly pro player, dangerously pro player, that would never have come up. Never have come up. No, nobody. I just, I just did. You, you did not get that vibe, generally speaking. Yeah, we all grew up. The media was an adversary to players and yeah. in some ways could drive a player out of town. Oh yeah. And then and a those lot of days are now over. Yeah. So I guess I, I'd say two things about this. One is like, when you talk about that, that thing about, I wonder how, who's, why this story is being broken and what the agenda is here to me, that is largely a product of all these, the locker room stuff, players getting more remote, all these things getting shut off. So we just assume that there's like, when it's not old fashioned journalism anymore, it's gotta be some kind of one for one relationship, some kind of favor trading with the agent or the player, or, you know, that journalists are so desperate to break news that that's the only way to do it anymore because the old avenues that we grew up with have been cut off. And probably to some extent, that's pretty true on the pro player stuff. I always do wonder, it's like, were we concerned at the time when everything was pro team and pro GM and pro owner? Were we worried about that? Were we, when I, I thought about that, watching the last dance, when Jerry Krause got to tell Michael Jordan what to do, which is now just mind blowing. Were people standing up and not saying Jerry Krause is an idiot. Cause I think a lot of people said that, but saying like Jerry Krause does not have the right to tell the best basketball player of all time when to end his career. Like that's beyond the pale that this guy should get that responsibility. Were we doing that at the time? Well, I thought about it when I did the book of basketball podcast about Rick Barry and reading about how it was perceived when he jumped to the ABA and how angry it made people like, how dare you? Yeah. yeah. How dare you do this? And I think that was a persistent theme when I was growing up and we had a lot of baseball free agency in the seventies and guys were jumping teams. There was a, how dare you element to it? you know, and, you know, or, or Dave Winfield, which you can go and you can go on sports illustrator, read the story. When he signed with the Yankees, it was like 10 years, 15 million, whatever, whatever the final number was. And 
the moment he didn't play well, he became a villain in New York. He's like, well, we paid all this money for what the hell? And that was just kind of the way it was for a long time. Now it feels like it's done a 180. And sometimes I wonder like how far can a player go with the, before there'll be like the stuff Harden has done in the last two months, he's pushed the envelope with this stuff as far as I can ever remember anybody doing it. I mean, you know, last decade or the two thousands, Vince Carter wanted to get traded out of Toronto and did everything he could. And the moment he got traded, he was awesome. Um, we've, it's not like we haven't seen players do this before. I'm surprised at people defending it so vehemently. And it almost seems like it's not even about sports. It's about this moment the country's having where it's like, he should be allowed to do what he wants. They can trade him and he would have no say in that. So this is the player's way of, you know, being able to, to own something for themselves too. And it's like, all right, but you're, you're shitting on all the fans that you have that supported you for the last eight years. And if we're, if we're going to get in the shitting on fans business, then who's going to be paying for all this stuff eventually? You know, the, the fans are ultimately the reason that players make the money. I, I think, I think you can be not pro owner and not pro player, but you can be pro fan. Does that make sense? And if I'm in Houston and I just rooted for this dude for eight years, and then he's like, I'll see you later and leaves hell and high water trying to get out of there. I don't know where that leaves us as fans. And that's the part that worries me. Yeah. I think what you're also noting here is the decline of the moral scold in sports writing. That was Mm. a very, very competitive profession for a very long time. (laughs) Uh, Noxiously. So I'm, I'm glad we're out of that era of, you know, um, moralizing about uh, athletes and so on. And I think that, uh, part of the reason for the evolution is that we just know much more about the mechanics and economics of sports than we once did. You know, we look at a college football coach making $8 million a year, and we know why that is ridiculous contextually when players aren't being paid. And we yeah. know it's absurd to like get riled up about somebody making $40 million to play baseball or basketball when you know what the television contracts are for the owners in these sports. But yeah, like everything, there's probably some medium in between. And I think that uh, part of what you're describing also is that the evolution of the business and like, you know, we should all be a little wary here, right? We've all, we were all one young people once we all walked into those uh, press boxes and saw those you know, old guys hunched over uh, typewriters and said, right. "I'm never going to be that person." Well, we became that, and 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 uh, it, in degrees, uh, and 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 I think that there's interesting new energy happening around all this stuff. But I also think that the way the business has modified the most is that the things that people want to do are largely, you know to be that kind of insider and break that news and have um, social media uh, vitality. I mean, speaking as somebody who writes a newspaper column, I I love doing it. I would sign a lifetime contract, but I feel like I'm making horseshoes right now. Okay. Like this is not a, um, you know, uh, something that people aspire to do when they're 11 years old. Now Um, they want to be woes. They want to be shams. They want to be, you know, people perking up on social media and, dropping bombs and all that great stuff. Um, And so I think it doesn't leave a lot of room for the kind of, um, you know, I'm going to get up here on my high horse and blast away. That's the kind of sports writing culture that we grew up with and very familiar with and and, and maybe it sometimes missed. I didn't like that 
era either. <laughs> like, I, I think we've all complained about a lot of the people that, you know, dabbled in that pool over the years. I, I don't, I get, maybe there's just no middle ground at all. I, I think the thing that's confusing to me, Brian, is, um, what, where this goes over the next three to four years, because, um, it seems like the players are in complete control, which is the way, the way it should be. But then I was thinking last night watching um, Durant get interviewed by the inside the TNT guys, and he clearly had animosity toward them, right? And he just yeah. does the one-word interview. And I was like, on the one hand, I'm just surprised that he played it that way because he's such a thoughtful guy. I've spent time with him. It was like, this is just a bad move by you. Why yeah. are you doing this? And on the other hand, I'm like, he's looking at it like these guys have trashed me and Kyrie over the years. Like, fuck these guys. I'm giving them one word answers. I'm like, I kind of respect that. So it's, it's just so much more complicated and nuanced. Now I enjoy it. I, the hardened thing is the part I can't wrap my head around when it gets to the point where somebody's just sabotaging their way out of town and people are defending that. That's where I'm like, I don't know what to do now. Yeah. And I just, I would love a world where we can actually take these on a case by case basis because everything is actually different. Some stuff right. is labor rights. Some stuff is players saying, I don't want to be just shipped around like a monopoly piece around the league. So I'm going to do something to make sure I have a little more agency in this decision. Right. I'm going to say, I want to go here, try to like, you know, okay. Right. But, but there are, there are big differences between these things. The one that used to get me was we had this era like 10 years ago where whenever a player would just chew out a reporter at his locker, everybody would start laughing on Twitter. But oh, look at that stupid reporter. He got clowned by the player. But then you'd actually listen to the question and be like, he, actually, the reporter is the victim here. You yeah, do. true. How would you like to be humiliated like that, you know, in front of everybody? Like, that's terrible. But in some cases, a reporter was being an asshole and probably deserved it. So I just, I guess I would just want us, to, whatever we migrate to in this thing, to be like, we can actually consider all these things on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. And it's a power dynamic, is it not, too? I think that, like, you know, you've written about this, Brian, I believe. I feel like that's, like, a thing we've said a lot in this podcast. You've written about this, Brian. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a power dynamic that where an athlete once was, you know, interested in the cover stories or needing the, you know, profiles and needing the... Um, goodwill of television hosts, not terribly essential anymore because this is a whole other opinion ecosystem that exists apart from traditional media in social media. And they have their own channels, which are in some instances are even bigger than anything that they can be offered from traditional media. And it's not as integral to their success or failure. I guess the thing that I miss is, is things just kind of come and go now. Player, players are just, some of this stuff is just crazy. Like LeBron had this thing. He said on one of the pods about how the two titles he won were the two toughest titles anyone's won in the history of the NBA. And it just kind of came and went. And I'm thinking like, all right, so your 2016 title where Draymond got suspended when they were up 3-1 and it flipped the series, <laughs> but it was a good comeback. And then the 2020 bubble title, these were tougher titles than the Celtics in 1968 with Bill Russell as a player coach and Martin Luther King getting assassinated and them de debating whether they should keep the series going or not during like the most tumultuous civil rights year in the history of the country and then going through and winning in the finals. Like, so it was tough. Th those two were tougher than that. Like, could, should we go through the 75 finals? Like 
when when stuff like that gets thrown out and nobody challenges it, that's when I get scared. When it's like we're just not going to challenge anything anymore. We're just gonna this stuff is just gonna come and go. Um, I just hope people challenge stuff a little bit more. Yeah, would, that would, would be one say, of my hopes. There was a lot of MJ stuff thrown out without challenge this year. You know, yes. And, and MJ's the greatest, right? But when MJ says, you know, Scottie Pippen was very selfish having that surgery when he did, because that really set us back in trying to defend our title. Oh, by the way, in the next year, I just quit basketball. Yeah, I just like, you know, like, wait, whoa, whoa, wait. <laughs> right. So I disappeared for was, 18 months. So you thought he was walking out of his teammates and yeah. And I can't. Yeah, it's weird. It seems like the more famous you are, the more the more you could kind of get away with spitting your uh, your own narrative. But yeah, well, that's uh, a long hey, history. Yeah. Same thing, same thing with uh, actors and singers and everybody else. Um, this was really fun. Good to see you guys. Happy holidays. The sports reporters. We stuck one in under the 2020 deadline. Um, hopefully, if we're doing a year end in 2021, I I hope uh I hope it's all about how, hey, wasn't it awesome when sports came back and <laughs> fans could be at games and uh, and and life was more normal. But anyway, happy holidays, fellas. Thank you. You too, both. Thank you. All right, that's it for the podcast. Hope you enjoyed all the audio from me this week. Hope you enjoy the holidays. Hope you had a great Christmas Eve. Hope you have an awesome Christmas day. Hope you're staying safe. And uh, I look forward to getting to the end of 2020, as I know you do as well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the support. Thanks for spreading the word. And thanks to my man, nephew Kyle, who has been uh, reliable and ready to roll this whole year. And it's been really fun to work with him and do all the stuff. Uh, all, the, all the little behind the scenes stuff you guys don't know about. Like when I fuck up my audio and I have to redo stuff or have to send stuff at three in the morning or, you know, some files not bouncing or, you know, Kyle's putting out fires left and right. I really appreciate what he's doing and uh, really appreciate all of you for listening and, and for spreading the word for us. So we will see you on Sunday Night with Cuss. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.